1: Welcome to something to Wrestle, with. To wrestle. Something to wrestle something with. to wrestle With.
0: Something to Wrestle With. Dude. Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man?
1: How are you? I am absolutely excellent and I have to correct you. We are now the award winning best sports podcast of the year. Something to wrestle with, Bruce Richard.
0: How about that, man? That's a pretty big deal. You know, from this, uh, just being kind of an idea this time about a year ago to now you went to the Academy of Podcasting and, uh, they had the Academy of Podcasting awards yesterday and. We had some stiff competition with uh, shows from ESPN, shows from CBS, shows from Podcast One, you know, well-established shows, and here we are, a couple of guys in a pool house and a garage making it work.
1: Kind of scary, isn't it?
0: Well, it just goes to show you, man, that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation,
1: right? Well, that's, that's what they say, but anything can happen right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Prichard, by God. It, it was crazy man and just to be up there it took a minute before i, I realized and i had to look up at the the big screen and it had the logo up there and i was just kind of had to pinch myself a little bit to realize that that, that was really that was really us they they, they like us man they like us
0: uh, yeah and, and and we really like you guys man we i'm still kind of in shock that we've got these awards coming back to Alabama and uh, Texas here, and that this is a real thing. So we need to thank everybody who's helped make this possible. Of course, Bauer and MLW took a chance on brother love and the mortgage guy more than a year ago. And, and since then we've made a lot of new friends along the way, Dave Silva has been doing our graphics, you know, since I don't know, almost the very beginning. Matt, Matt Coon has come on board and has started to make our show sound a little more fun with some music here and there. Uh, and just all the people who've helped along the way, whether it's, you know, Chris or Wilson or any of those guys who have helped out in a big way. Mike, uh, we have had tons of support with the show, and we had a lot of support last weekend in New York City, man. We had two back-to-back shows. I had a blast. I've got really good feedback. We need to give a special shout-out uh, to James Madden and Shuley from the Sturm Show. Man, Shuley was awesome. Uh, such a cool guy. I feel like I knew him already just from being a Stern listener. And James Madden, a super funny guy. But what a show we had on Sunday, man. We promised a big surprise, and did we deliver or what? We had Dan Soder there. If you haven't heard, uh, and Bruce has even admitted this now, has the very best Macho Man Randy Savage impression of all time. He also does one hellified Andre the Giant. Uh, but the big surprise to me was the shadowy figure, Oz himself, Brian Gerwartz, or however you say I'm supposed to say his name like a redneck, um, he, he attended our show. You know, Brian never does this. We've never, I've never even seen a picture of Brian. And not only did we see a picture, he was there telling stories and he stole the show, Bruce.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, when I was sitting on the couch with Brian in the back and looked at him and said, Hey, do you want to come out and be a part of the show? The hesitation in his voice. When he answered, uh, no, I, I don't, I don't think so. That gave me that small opportunity that you need when there's just a little bit of hesitation to go ahead and jump on it and say, okay, Hey, great, man, we'll just bring you out for a couple of minutes. And we brought him out for a couple of minutes and he ended up staying for the whole show. And yes, the little son of a bitch, uh, stole the show and, and thank you for, to Brian, just for coming out in general. Cause it was great to see him been several years And frigging Dan Soder coming out with the macho man. And I had totally planned on having a macho off with him. But when I closed my eyes, I macho man was in the room and I knew I had nothing. I just had nothing.
0: It was awesome.
1: But what we had was a great time. Uh, Thanks
0: to everybody who made it possible. The folks at Gramercy were so awesome. We hope that we're able to come by and, and come see you guys again next year Uh, It was a blast, and it wouldn't have been possible without your support. Thank you so much for supporting the show the way you did. Uh, It's pretty cool to meet you guys before the show and just chat about what your favorite episode has been or what your favorite bit has been or what you'd like to hear more about. But there are some stories that we just can't share here on the podcast, and Brian gave us some great ones about a little free bird bed and a little free bird house and uh, Gunther, and there's just so,
1: the, the rock with all the triple H. All the stupid A's. babies, all the stupid babies, I mean, all the stupid babies. You just stupid baby, stupid baby.
0: All right, Bruce, you can't go any further. We actually didn't tell that story on stage. That was a backstage story. All right, Bruce, it's time for What Happened When? The WWE presented SummerSlam 2002. It went down 15 years ago today, August 25th, 2002, from the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York. Uh, of course, the year prior, there's no competition. WWE or F at the time, I guess, had swallowed up both WCW and ECW. We're down to just one company, and we're in a little bit of a transition. Lots of things are happening. We're going to cover it in long form today. But, Bruce, you watched this pay-per-view for the first time in a long time this week. What would you think?
1: Top to bottom, uh, like I, I've said here before, sometimes I tend to fast forward through the matches. I watched intently and thoroughly enjoyed top to bottom this pay-per-view. I thought that the matches were great, and it was a lesson in psychology. So for all you guys out there that want to be wrestlers and want to know how to tell a better story in the ring, I suggest you go back and you watch SummerSlam 2002 and learn.
0: No, I totally agree. I, um, I'm a big fan of this pay-per-view. I'd kind of forgotten how loaded the card was until I started to get going on this one, uh, but it did huge business everywhere you look. They did 14797 paid for a gate of $893,625. This was a sellout. Bruce, any guess on how long it took to sell out? Uh, three minutes. Well, 90 minutes, ninety minutes, but pretty close. I like that you went 317 because it's just one after Austin 316, right?
1: Well, of course.
0: Uh, A gate like this and an automatic sellout like that, is this something that everybody's all high fives about? Or are you kind of wondering, shit, man, if it sold out in 90 minutes, could we have got a bigger venue somewhere?
1: Uh, Most of us were wondering why the hell it took so long to sell out. (laughs) I love that you you were. It's it's, It's like, damn, what are we doing wrong? took almost 90 minutes we, we were really sweating it there the last uh 22 minutes because they can shit maybe it's not going to go all the way i love you for that all right speaking of revenues
0: you know i've got to break it down when i can dave Meltzer wrote about it in the july eighth 802 observer saying that revenue was down only about seven percent from the prior year 456 was the record breaking year that the wwe had in 2001 Uh, Here, they were on pace for 425. Meltzer would write, It should be noted that while business began to sink almost literally the day after WrestleMania X7, the really serious collapse just started this past May and will not be reflected until the next quarterly report. Next year's fiscal 2003 report could potentially be one for the ages. You know, I know you were just bragging a minute ago, Bruce, about how quickly this sold out. But at this point, were you guys already starting to feel that business had dipped a little bit? Was somebody hitting the panic button, or was it just cruise control because there's no competition and you're still profitable?
1: No, there was no panic, and business was still good. It was simply a different time, and we were happy with what we were doing. We were doing less shows, and so we knew that the revenue was going to be down over doing more shows the previous year. So there was no need to hit the panic button because television was still selling out, and house show business, for the most part, was good.
0: Okay, Bruce, some of this is going to start to sound familiar. Live event revenue is down 10%. It was 81.9 the prior year. Now it's 74.1. But here's the real kicker. They're running more events this year. They're running 237 events compared to only 212 the prior year, which means that your average show, this is an average show now, guys, in 2001 drew a gate of three hundred and eighty six thousand three hundred and twenty dollars and now it's down to just $312,658. Attendance, therefore, is down 17%. Your pay-per-view revenues were also down from 128 dollars down to just $112 million, and that's because the buys went from $8 million down to just $7.1. However, television rights fees were up, uh, and that is a significant improvement. So chat me up about, the way the business started to change because this feels like the first time we see all the other, you know, indicators start to show that business is on a downward trend, but television rights is kind of making up the difference.
1: Is this the first time you remember that shift in business being that way? Well, it's again, when you go public, uh, they're looking at the bottom line and they're looking at what the company makes at the end of the year. And obviously, I think there's a lot of ways that that can be skewed and that they can write some things off. We're going to go ahead and we're going to take a loss for this quarter because we're going to increase our revenues next quarter. And obviously, I'm not the financial genius and and don't understand all of that completely, but all Vince cared about was the bottom line. And If we were making more money in rights fees, then that compensated for making less money in overall live events. The model that had been in the past of live events driving your business is we see now. That that model was slowly changing right before our very eyes.
0: Uh, Meltzer would break down with with much more detail here if you'd like to see this. This is in the July eighth two 2002 issue of The Observer, but he's specifically breaking down – you know, how everything is moving up and down and all around. But one of the things I was fascinated with is how home video revenues were up 12%, which is one of their biggest growths. And I, I wondered, well, why is that? And then Meltzer made it plain here because DVDs got hot. So the idea being lots of wrestling fans. And how about this? Lots of Disney fans and movie fans. They had already established their VHS collection, but now the world is catching on to DVD. They like this new medium. So they're going to go buy the same shows again, just to have them in the new medium. That has to be something that Vince and company has their finger on. And they start releasing some of that old stuff on DVD again. Right?
1: Well, not only that, but it's, you're looking at a whole brand new delivery system that was cheaper and you could deliver it a a whole hell of a lot more. A CD is much smaller than a VHS. And, and, like you said, there was this whole phenomenon that people who had already purchased all those WrestleManias before on VHS, now we could do a box set in DVD form. We, it just was a whole new deal when it went. <laughs> I remember going from 8-track to cassette, cassette to CD. That's what we were experiencing right now. So the revenue, you're just repeating what you'd already sold on a whole new format.
0: Merchandise was down nine percent to twenty six point two million, and they pegged a lot of that on the attendance drop, which makes sense, right, Bruce? The bulk of your merchandise was sold at house shows back then. Obviously, the WWE Shop Zone is a big portion now, but back then, folks came to the arenas with cash in their billfolds to get these shirts, right?
1: And that's and that's where you sold your gimmicks, the old school man. Come to the live event, get your pictures, get your T-shirts, get your posters. And that's where a great bulk of the merchandise money was made.
0: Licensing took the biggest hit. You see revenues go from 120 million down to just 101 million. Do you remember there being a time where putting WWF on the logo on anything, that old Scratch logo, just meant it was going to fly off the shelves and you were getting ridiculous offers for licensing to products? Do you remember one in particular where you heard, hey, we were just pitched a WWF version of this and you thought, God, I hope they don't make
1: that. <laughs> there there were a lot of those, and there a lot of them we made from Beanie Babies to just ridiculous stuff that the marketing people would come in. And like you said, they would just pitch these horrendous ideas of well, – right now I can see them going in and somebody doing the pop sockets that are they are really hot now with the WWE logo but if you could put a logo on it we were being pitched it and it was every any and everything under the sun I believe that that was during the time that Jim Bell was in as well and or maybe he had left by then but popcorn uh every kind every kind of drink cup you can ever imagine if, if like I said you could put a logo on it we were pitched
0: um, one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is the nightclub, the world nightclub. And they actually do a cutaway here on the show, so we'll talk about it a little more there as well. But this used to be called WWF New York, and you guys tried this a few different ways, but it seemed to be a fairly consistent money loser. Uh, and here Meltzer's reporting it's down 15%, and he says that they had kind of sort of blamed it on September 11th. Uh, how much of an impact do you think September 11th had on the WWF's you know, restaurant and bar and nightclub effort, given that tourism and travel and some of that was, was certainly going to take a hit?
1: I think you can attribute some of it to that. But the rent in Times Square was astronomical. The food was not good. <laughs> I mean, you, when you want to go out to eat, you don't go to the Hard Rock Cafe or Planet Hollywood. Uh, you sure didn't go to the World, to the uh, WWF New York. It Great location, expensive, but people looked at it. The general tourists, if you weren't a wrestling fan, there was no reason to go in there. And it just kind of fizzled, and, and it fizzled, and they tried to rebranded as the world and just do it a nightclub. And the, the rebranding of the world was trying to get people in on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday night club scene right. in New York. Um, that was the first, it was a matter of fact, it was the first place that Chris Angel ever played and got a lot of national attention. And I remember we used to have to go and see the acts and go down and uh, watch these guys see if they had anything and can we do it? Can we do something with them on TV to promote them? And Chris had this gimmick where he was going to uh, submerge himself in water for 24, 48 hours, whatever the hell it was. And we did it live on raw. And it was a disaster would be the nicest thing I could say about it because he was, he was pissing in the water and the water got murky and, and, it's, it's like he's got a tank. He's got a tube. What's How hard is it? It didn't look difficult. You know what I mean? I'm sure it is to be submerged in water that long. I'm sure it's a great stunt. all that, But it didn't look impressive and just kind of sucked. I don't know how much that helped Chris because Chris was great. Chris was great live, and he was a hell of an attraction at the world. But Chris was probably the uh, the best act that we had kind of coming through there at the time.
0: Um, when Vince McMahon sees that this Chris Angel thing is getting sideways and the water's murky and blah, 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 what's his
1: reaction? God damn, what's in the water? Did he poop himself? Ugh, can you imagine the feces floating around and getting up his nose and under his nails?
0: Ugh, disgusting amazing.
1: Don't let him shake my hand.
0: <laughs> it's important to recognize too here that uh, overall profit is down, but let's carry what they had going on at the time. You've got 164.8 million, which is down from 197 million. That's profit boys and girls, but expenses increased from 104.1 to 109.6. Now what costs more? the name change, you got that going, the World Nightclub, and increased promotional costs. So there's a lot going on here. But the prior year, even when they had $197 million profit, that included the way they picked up WCW, and, and this is a big deal, the Owen Hart settlement. So you've got lots of stuff going on here. And even though business is down, they made $164.8 million dollars that's some major cash. Uh, they, they gave this forecast for 2003. Revenues are expected to grow 7% for the next year. I find that interesting given that all the indicators where the business was down, they thought they could still somehow get a 7% increase. And how did they do that? Well, they said they plan to run 339 events. And that is way, way, way more than what they were running in 01 and 02. This is still a fraction of what you guys ran in the 80s. When it comes out that you guys are going to be ramping up the house show business this much in the idea that maybe fewer people are coming out to see you per show, so the methodology is let's just have more shows. Is there any pushback from the younger generation who weren't there to see the crazy schedule you guys had in the late 80s?
1: No, because they wanted the money. They wanted to be able to get out and work, and they wanted to have the opportunity to to work more. So that was that was great for them because the more opportunity, the more live events, the more events of any kind, that was a plus for them. They loved it. Guys wanted to work. That, that was a time, a beautiful time in the business when talent actually wanted to work.
0: It's a big deal, and um, uh, if you'd like to see more of this, this sort of uh, breakdown of the finances. It's the July 8th, 2002 issue of the Observer. Uh, I love it. This is also the same Observer, though, where it comes out uh, that Bret Hart had had a stroke. And, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this in great detail about Bret Hart and, and his return later and all that stuff. But do you have any memories of Bret having this stroke and what the conversation was inside the office at the time?
1: Well, we obviously we were all concerned for him. This was still during a time that Brett and Vince had not kind of reconciled. They haven't hugged it out at this point, but anytime that you hear one of your comrades uh, is down, you, you feel bad for him. And no one really knew the extent of Brett's stroke, especially when it first came out, we, you know, you heard he was in a bike accident. Well, First thing that goes through your mind is that he was on a motorcycle. Right, he was actually on a mountain bike and was wearing a helmet. But it's scary someone that age having a stroke, and the concern, you know, we were just concerned for Brett. And no matter what your differences are at the time, you still hate to hear that, you know, bad shit about anybody.
0: So let me ask: Did did Vince call Brett and check on him? Does anybody call and check on him, or does that not happen?
1: I believe that Vince called the Hart family. I don't think that Vince spoke to Brett directly, but I know that he did call the family and make sure, see how Brett was doing and send him flowers. And it wasn't too long after this that the reconciliation with uh, Vince and Brett took place. As a matter of fact, it took place in Boca.
0: Okay, we'll talk about that another time. I just wanted to at least mention that this is around the same time that the accident happened. Right. Um, I do want to talk about Les Thatcher here, because Les Thatcher is running the HWA, the Heartland Wrestling Association. It's down in Cincinnati, um, and around this time as a cost-cutting measure, according to the rumor and innuendo, uh, Shane makes the call and has it approved by Vince to cut all ties with the developmental territory HWA that Les was running uh, this kind of leaves Jim Cornette and Danny Davis and their Ohio Valley wrestling in Louisville as the sole development group at the time. Why did this happen, and, and what kind of went sideways with less?
1: Nothing went sideways with less and it was not Shane McMahon's call either. It was Jim Ross's call. It was a cost-cutting measure where we had uh, several developmental systems working at the time and cutting back and less, unfortunately, did not have nearly as big of an operation as OVW had at the time, and OVW was able to run several live events. They were doing live television and cost-cutting. Something had to go, budget, but that was Jim Ross's call. Shane would have had nothing to do with that.
0: This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paint your life.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law all from painterlife My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see painterlife dot can really create a hand painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life, I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the PaintYourLife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about PaintYourLife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam, you're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. PaintYourLife.com, that can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there, You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to 87204. That's wrestle to 87204. Text wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Eligible items only Exclusions apply See ebaymotors.com Around the same time That they're trying to cut costs here They open the WWE Films Department Um, This is right out of the figure four A new Los Angeles based division Headed by Joel Simon The producer of Wild Wild West And X-Men among other films Will handle the movie careers Of all the WWE superstars Catch me up Bruce Why is this a good decision If we're worried about Showing less profit, so we're trying to cut a developmental territory. Why would we open a films division?
1: The opportunity to make more money. And there was an opportunity in Hollywood to be able to utilize the WWF superstars, WWE superstars. And by having studios and having representation in Hollywood to be able to get our talent in movies, but also to be able to produce our own movies. And while people may laugh at it and go, oh, yeah, well, The Marine and all these other movies went straight to video, there's a lot of money in straight-to-video movies and in low-budget movies, and it gets exposure. And there is a market out there to do that. And that's what we were looking at. We weren't looking – well, that depends on who you ask. Vince was probably – Vince would tell you that he was looking to be the next Disney and the next Universal. The reality of the situation was – was that we wanted to get a foothold in Hollywood and have a present presence in Hollywood to be able to get our guys in roles and get them in movies and that's how you do it, it there, was to grow it's not like okay well, you know that was a growing deal and it wasn't going to make money right away
0: it was said at the time that um and Simon said this Booker T, Big Show, and Triple H were the superstars who he thought had the potential to be in, in the WWE films. Do you know of any ideas for characters or movies or, or angles or storylines that were discussed with those guys that ultimately were shot down?
1: Yeah. One was well, first of all, uh, Vincent had an idea of doing this story with Booker T as a drug dealer that eventually turns good. He's a mean, nasty drug dealer from the streets who ends up helping the cop. you know, just your typical uh, bad guy turned good who's really a good guy at heart. That was one of the original deals that came out with Booker T that never came to fruition. Of of those guys that he mentioned, uh, Booker T and Undertaker were two of the best characters that, in my opinion, would have done very well in film. And they're two of the guys that they never really utilized. But it was, you know, from later on, John Cena, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin was another one that, good God, with his, his chops and his name recognition alone, I thought would have would have done a whole lot better than, than anything that they did. I, I truly enjoyed the, the first movie that we did with him, The Condemned. I thought that was one of the best movies that WWF studios ever did.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, ribbing the Undertaker. We've talked about this before with the Cucumbers and Owen Hart and Paul Bear and these guys. Uh, but once upon a time, Booker T got one over with the Spinner Rooney. Can you catch us up on this story? Because this is a story that a lot of us have heard about. And then some of, uh, some of us have even seen on DVD as an extra uh, but you were there. What do you remember about the Taker Rooney?
1: One of the, I guess, things that you would strive for as a talent is to break the unbreakable. And Undertaker would be one of those unbreakables that he didn't he didn't bust in the ring. He rarely, you know, would break character. So if you could get Taker to break character in the ring, that was a victory. It was an internal victory. You felt good about it. And that's what we attempted to do here with the Taker Rooney. Every night uh, when Booker T would finish up, Booker T would have whoever around, whether it be a tag match or whatever, everybody to do their version of a Spinner Rooney. And this one night, without smartening Taker up, Taker went to exit, and we got word to Booker, hey, man, get Taker back in the ring and call him out, basically try to get him to do a Taker Rooney. And Taker refused and refused and refused. And finally, uh, he got the hell out. Rock, yeah, whoever came out. But, yeah, it was, we broke him. We broke him.
0: So, at this point, you know, uh, Booker T is in the ring, supposed to be competing in a match. And Undertaker says he's not, lit. the fans aren't leaving until they see Spinner Rooney, Booker T turns it on him, says he needs to see a takeroony. And one by one, The Rock, Hunter, Vince McMahon, everybody comes out and does their own spineroony in an effort to make sure that he does it. And he didn't do it. How long did you guys rag on The Undertaker for refusing to do a takeroony?
1: Not too long, <laughs> out, of, out of fear and respect. Uh, but it was it was positively classic. And the more the more people that came out, and the more people that tried to get Undertaker to do the a Rooney, I think the further in that he dug his heels in, that he wasn't going to do it. That now he was going to basically be in control and say, "Okay, what else you got back there?" Supposedly, I ain't doing it. Supposedly, this goes like forty minutes. Yes, um, that would probably be a kind estimate.
0: Do you remember ever seeing a Taker Rooney, ever?
1: Uh, no. I saw a Shakespeare Rooney, but that was as close as you were ever going to get. What's a Shakespeare Rooney? A Shakespeare Rooney is when Undertaker kind of kneels on one knee and holds the hand up, you know, the, the Shakespeare pose. Um, but no, he, he wouldn't go any further than that. And, and really, the, the Shakespeare is kind of how Booker starts off the spinner Rooney. So yeah, it, uh that was about as close as you were going to get to a take a Rooney.
0: Let's get to the actual show itself. SummerSlam 2002. When I watched it this week, I kind of forgot that they had J R and Lawler calling the raw matches and Michael Cole and Taz calling the SmackDown matches. Cole and Taz are down by the ring. Jr. and King are up on the platform near the Titan How does that work? You guys draw straws for that? Or how does that go
1: down? Well, no, that was the way that the TV shows were set up at the time. SmackDown announcers were at the ring, and for Raw, they were up on the platform. We didn't have the Raw announcers at at ringside at that time for Raw. So they were in their usual announced positions.
0: Okay, I'm with you on that. So let me ask another way. As far as who is going to be where, not on the pay-per-view, but on the TV show, does Jim Ross prefer to be on the platform and Taz preferred to be ringside, how is that delegated on the television shows?
1: It was only to be different uh, between the two shows. Jim Ross Ross preferred to be ringside. I think any any great commentator or play-by-play guy wants to be right in the middle of the action. And being at ringside, you're right there and you feel it. The further you're removed from the action, the less you can feel it.
0: I kind of imagined you were going to say that, and here's what the reason I ask. It feels like something where JR would campaign to be ringside, and everybody else would say, I'll do it wherever you want me to. And just to be Vince, Vince says, cool, put JR on the platform.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that may happen at some point. At this point in time, it was strictly a form of, how they had it on those separate shows.
0: Well, was JR difficult to deal with in a situation like this where he's not calling the pay per view the whole way through? He's only doing his part of the shows. He's not getting to sit where he might like to sit. Any of that a challenge?
1: No, not really with me. No. JR could uh, grumble and groan sometimes to Kevin Dunn and to production people and to whoever would listen. But for the most part, JR was there to do his job, man. Tell me what you want me to do and I'll go out and do it.
0: Uh, Taz was here rocking a suit, but Michael Cole is in a casual shirt here. Same with JR. Uh, When did the dress code for the announced team change and why?
1: Well, that was kind of in the time of our casual dress. And thank God for Steve Austin that we got away from the suits and we got away from the the coats and ties everywhere every day. And we got to just be a little more relaxed. So it was during that time that he felt that the uh, on-air talent could have a little bit more relaxed look as well. But it's funny because that is actually in my notes of how they were dressed. And I thought that um, just comparing to where, where we are today and where where we were before that, I thought that the guys looked way too casual, in, in particular Jr. and Michael Cole.
0: Well, the other announcers, uh, the Spanish announced team and the other announcers ringside, some of those guys are just in t-shirts. This just feels way different. You know, you've got a uh, black mat and uh, the black barricades and a black ring skirt and black poles and, and black um, you know, ropes and black turnbuckles and everything is much more understated here than the kind of over-the-top presentation that we get now. And it feels like Vince's kind of, Vince's taste just sort of changes as the wind blows. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes. Cool. Exactly. And it was the, the whole black, the black mats and the black barricade was to accentuate the ring And the ring being with the light blue uh, apron that was to accentuate the wrestlers and the action in the ring. And if you can dull everything else out around it, then it brings your attention to what you want the attention to be, and that's on the talent in the ring.
0: Let's talk about the first match uh, and what an opener this is. I mean, when you've got Ray Mysterio Jr. and Kurt Angle working in your opener, uh, that tells you how stacked this card is going to be. The the crowd was super hot for this. There's one spot in particular they loved where Ray was flipping over the ref onto Angle on the floor, and the crowd's just super hot for it. Um, Lots of crazy stuff going on here. There there is a spot somewhere in here where he hits the 619 and manages uh, to not get the pin. Even after the West Coast pop, um, he goes for a top rope maneuver. Ultimately, uh, that winds up in a submission, and he winds up tapping out. And this was Rey Mysterio's pay-per-view debut. Uh, Mysterio had just debuted in the company in June, um, and this is well after the invasion angle had started. I'm sure we'll talk about him again another time in long form, but catch me up. Why did Ray not come in with everybody else the year prior? Why the delay here? And ultimately, why was it the right call to have him make his pay per view debut but go out with a loss?
1: The reason that Ray didn't come in a year before with everybody else was because Ray had a great contract with WCW, and Ray opted to go ahead and wait out and get his contract paid out. So. It was a lucrative contract. I don't blame him for doing that. he was he chose to stay home during that time. So Ray coming in here, his debut, in my opinion, what better way to debut than against a guy like Kurt Angle and the match itself off the chart, the innovativeness of Kurt Angle being able to take a guy like Ray Mysterio, and I thought that Kurt made Ray shine and made him a mega superstar in this match. And in addition to, you know, just making him that mega star, being able to hang with a guy like Kurt Angle, I felt that the tap out right in the middle of the ring was the right thing to do because people believed it. And the way that they worked the match and the way that they told the story of the underdog Ray um, was just absolutely masterfully done. And I think that it, got Ray over more than if Ray had come in there and beat Kurt. I don't think people would have believed it at that time.
0: Well, it's just curious that you guys would book him against this type of opponent right away, but it is a credit to Kurt because Ray did get all of his hot moves in. Uh, He did make him look good, but he didn't go down to the finisher. Um, Was Vince kind of on the fence as to what Ray's upside might be? Of course, we would know he would go on to win the world title, but was Vince still with his old school He's so tiny attitude
1: at the time. Well, yes. And you add to the fact that Vince's reaction to Eddie Guerrero several years before that was, he's so tiny. He's a little fella. Now you bring in basically Eddie's baby brother. (laughs) um, And ah, this little guy, what the hell can he do? And I can't see his face. What the hell does he look like? He's a cute little guy that, yeah, I think it took it, it took time for Ray to kind of win Vince over and, and win over the WWE audience, too.
0: So chat me up. When, when Ray is finished up with WCW, he's not wearing a mask. He comes in here wearing a mask, but you just kind of, and I'm sure you're doing a tongue-in-cheek, you're referencing that Vince said you couldn't see him because he's wearing a mask. The whole idea behind wearing the mask is to sell a shit ton of merchandise, right? I mean, that feels like a Vince call
1: all day. No, Vince hates masks and just didn't – no, he didn't see it. He didn't didn't like the mask. The sell on it was the – to those of us that understood the Lucha side of the business, it was – It's a heritage, and you can tell this story of the luchador and the mask and felt that a guy like uh, Ray, with his legacy in the business, that that was something that we could capitalize on. And that's a tough sell to Vince because Vince wants to recreate everything and own everything. So he doesn't want something that has been used and done before. He doesn't want somebody that owns their name and that has established their name somewhere else. So it was a tough call, and it was an uphill battle for Ray, but he was able to do it. And that was one of the selling points, was being able to say, good God, look at the merchandising that you can do with kids wanting to wear this Ray Mysterio mask. And kids could identify with Ray because of his size. And the other selling point was, hey, Vince, we got your Mighty Mouse. He can be Mighty Mouse. Look at that cute little Mighty Mouse motherfucker. And... Again, he, he eventually got sold.
0: So I find it interesting you talk about Ray's history in the business, but you guys actually wind up dropping the junior from his name. Is that because Vince hated being called junior? Or if you're trying to embrace the history of Ray, why would you drop the junior?
1: Well, Vince does hate juniors. Vince hates, hates juniors just in general and feels that uh, junior is less than. And Vince wasn't a junior. That's just how people referred to him. And he hated that. And I think that when people, uh, John Meekum, who his dad was John Meekum Jr., okay, a friend of mine, he was the original owner of the New Orleans Saints. His dad, John Meekum Sr., was one of the first big four oil tycoons in the world. And Meekham always hated the junior because he felt it was less than. And Vince felt felt that same way, that a man should be a man. He has a name. He's not junior. Junior's a kid. And just didn't like it.
0: I'm curious to hear what Kurt Angle thought about working against Ray here. I ask because he's in the opening match, and a year prior to this, he was in the main event for the world title. Um, Any sort of pushback from Kurt over his positioning
1: here? Not at all. No, he's a you got to understand, Connor. The, the opening match is a feature position. It's the very first thing. It sets the tone for the show.
0: Okay, I, I get that. I'm just curious. Why did Stone Cold and The Rock never open a show? It's a featured match. They did. When?
1: Sure they did, all throughout their career. Both of them opened shows.
0: <laughs> not once they were in the title picture.
1: Well, no, not when they were in the title picture, but they've all opened. So uh, it's, it's a feature. John Cena just opened up a pay-per-view the other night. All right.
0: Uh, Let's talk about, I guess, the elephant in the room. Is this just the old traditional rumor in any window? We've all heard this. The WWF guy has to beat the WCW guy in the big match. Can you defend and say that's not what this was?
1: No, it's not what this was.
0: Can you think of a time when a WCW guy, a WCW creation that was a big star there, beat a WWF guy in his first big pay-per-view right off the top?
1: I have no idea, not off the top of my head. I don't remember. If I had a whole list of stuff in front of me, I could probably come up with something, but no. Off the top of my head, no. I just watched this show, Conrad. I didn't go back and do a study of every pay-per-view in the history of pay-per-view.
0: You can look at them all because it never happened, brother. Uh, What do you think of the match? In the dirt sheets, it got three and three-quarter stars. What's a...
1: Well, if it was in the Tokyo Dome, it would have gotten...
0: Oh, God damn. How many times are we going to do that, Joe? What would well, you think because, of the fucking because, match? Because,
1: God damn it, I don't give a shit about his star rating. I thought that the match... I asked what was you thought. Okay, thank I you. I know. I thought Fuck. that the match was positively excellent. And I, I kept writing down about great psychology and great story, but that was a theme of this entire night. And this damn thing set it off. And again, Ray selling in this particular event was another lesson in how young baby faces could learn how to sell and get a crowd. And it was masterfully done on the part of Ray Mysterio.
0: Well, and I think Kurt Angle doesn't nearly get the credit he deserves. And these days, of course he's the GM, but I think a lot of younger fans have forgot just how off the charts he was. Think of the type of match he would have with a Steve Austin or a triple H or even a Brock. And now here, this type of match that he's doing with Mysterio it almost feels like Kurt Angle can do anything he wants.
1: That's because Kurt Angle can do anything, and Kurt Angle is one of those talent that can adapt to his opponent. So Kurt Angle, you didn't, when you worked with Kurt Angle, you didn't have Kurt Angle's match. Kurt Angle made the match that you had with him unique to you. So every, every opponent that worked with Kurt, their matches didn't have to be Kurt Angle's matches he was able to adapt and make his opponents look better than they ever could have on their own.
0: Next up, we see Stephanie walking into her dressing room and the raw GM, Eric Bischoff is there sitting on her couch and they have decided to share an office here and they're going to watch the rest of the event together. Uh, This, this is the stereotypical GM office at the time, a couple of posters. Some of them are backlit from below a fake tree in the corner, a couple of black leather couches, who put this together and whose job was to set up this dummy GM studio every that single show? The beautiful
1: ficus tree? Yeah. That, that traveled the entire world by God? You got to love the ficus. Um, Richie Posner is the one who originally designed all of that. And everywhere we went, the idea, Vince wanted the damn uh, general manager's office to look the same every time so that it was the right. same office. They've got It's got to be the same. Um it just, God, with the pipe and drapes sometimes, some some buildings, they just look like ass. And Nassau Coliseum backstage looks like ass. And that's what this was. But I produced all of these, and we did them live. And this was not the best night for Eric Bischoff and Stephanie, in my opinion. I felt that they just were kind of, if you go back and watch it, there's almost like a hesitation between the two of them. On everything they do, they're waiting. It's almost like they're counting, waiting for a reaction. And the chemistry or lack thereof between them was real. But watching it uh, 15 years later seemed off to me.
0: Um. Do you think that you did these live because uh, you're lazy as shit and just wanted to do everything live so you didn't have to do it over and over? I mean, that's what the rumor and innuendo on you
1: is. Oh, okay. I like doing everything live. And here's the reason I like doing everything live, because you can't redo it. And when you are doing it live, there's an energy about it. And there is a definite feeling of liveness in a anticipation that anything can happen and whatever the fuck does happen is real. And if you pre-tape shit to ad nauseum, it comes across that it's been pre-taped and overproduced till it's just the drizzling shit. So fuck you and fuck anybody else. <laughs> I because you know you. why? Because huh? I can produce live and I'm good enough that I can fucking do it. And some people can't because they're not good enough to produce live. Because they're afraid. Because they want the net. They want to pre-tape it so that it's perfect and pretty. Because they can't handle the stress of doing it live. That's when I excel is when I'm live and I don't have a net.
0: Um, I'd invite everybody to rewind about two minutes where Bruce said that this segment was not very good.
1: No, all of them that night were not very good.
0: And who produced them all?
1: I did. Live. Yeah. Okay. It wouldn't uh, have been any. No, it wouldn't have been any. Trust me, it would not have been any better pre-taped.
0: Oh, because you're, you're just terrible at your job. Got it. Taped her yeah, life. That's it. I uh, suck. I mean, Jim Cornette agrees. Hey, thanks for
1: coming, folks. <laughs> First podcast of the year. um we, here in Anaheim, California, and I greatly appreciate all your support. And thanks so much.
0: We're not winning this yet, back to back. We have to have Tony win it next year. Hey, so let's get oh, to the next God. match. Uh, Rick Flair, Chris Jericho, what a phenomenal, I don't know, surprise. I kind of forgot this match was even here, but it's a pretty fun match. Um, the match actually gets about three stars in the dirt sheets. It's kind of weird when I watch this back, though, uh, that Rick had his original WWF theme music from 1991. Any guess as to why that might be? Because for so much of this era Ric Flair stuff, we get the real theme, but right here, not so much.
1: I don't know. I, I don't know what that issue is with the uh, network. And, and what when they change out some music and some music they don't, they change out, I, I have no idea. I, I, it's probably just a licensing issue.
0: What led to this, of course, is Flair was doing a backstage interview on Raw uh, and Jericho attacked him and, and Flair got some color. Well, then later in the show, Jericho's band Fozzy is performing on Raw and Flair comes out and knocks over the musical equipment. And this is all happening, of course, during a time where we're seeing Jericho make a really big push for his band, Fozzy. And we've never really talked about Fozzy before here on the show. What did Vince think of Chris Jericho as a rock star and specifically his band, Fozzy?
1: What's with this fuzzy shit? I don't get it. Does he want to be a wrestler or a singer? Vince didn't really get it, but it was an opportunity to let Jericho do something else and change up his character somewhat. Um, So why not give it a try? And if Chris was successful with it, it benefits WWE and vice versa. So why not try it and just was able to change up the Jericho character somewhat and still staying true to the Y2J character. But I remember... (laughs) I remember Flair going out trying to beat up the the set when he attacked Jericho on that the
0: was set. super fun. I'll, I dug that
1: fun or funny. It was hilarious because <laughs> I remember going back and Rick having the damnedest time trying to knock things over and destroy it and, and things are bouncing back on him and they did a masterful job of editing it in the package that made it look fun but this this was Rick at his best in my opinion just being crazy Rick and kind of out of control but also especially in the match being in control of the match setting the pace and taking Jericho on a nice little ride and it was Nostalgic to just go back and and help everyone understand why Ric Flair can be regarded in many people's opinion as the greatest of all time. Because even at this age, Rick was still out there able to hang. Some things he shouldn't have been doing and some things – here was a guy – think about this, Conrad. Two years before that, was embarrassed to take his shirt off on television and was out there hanging with this kid and making the kid look like a million bucks.
0: And it's got to be a pretty big deal, because uh, you have referenced it already. Flair's 53. Uh, He doesn't come back until November of 01, Uh, but he gets talked into wrestling events at the Rumble in 02, then has the big match with The Undertaker at WrestleMania. Uh, He's teaming with The Big Show to face Steve Austin at Judgment Day. He's working Eddie Guerrero at King of the Ring. I mean, so he's putting together some big-name matches through 2002, and he allegedly didn't even have a lot of confidence in himself or his work or his performance or his appearance or any of that here. When it comes out that Flair's supposed to go over, McMahon tells Jericho that Flair's going to win with an inside cradle. Uh, and Jericho wants to lose with the figure four since Flair at this time was losing or winning so rarely with it. Uh, according to Jericho, Flair disagreed with that suggestion and said he didn't deserve to win that way because he wasn't himself. So this leads to the scene of Jericho actually giving Flair a pep talk, making him realize that he's Ric Flair and that he deserves, the, he deserves the best for himself. Do you remember there being some sort of hubbub about the finish here?
1: Well, the the hubbub was Jericho's right. The Vince wanted Flair to catch catch him with a quick one, Flair catching Jericho with a quick one. And Jericho made the suggestion, like, you know, And go back, you know, here's one for you. Go back and tell me how many pay-per-views Ric Flair has ever won with figure four. Not a lot. I don't think he's ever won any. So here was Ric Flair's finisher that he never beat anybody with. And it was Jericho's like, if he's going to beat me, beat me with your finish. And it just goes again to show, as I I stated uh, over a year ago when we started doing this and I was talking about current product and saying Chris Jericho is the best out there. This was the seeds of that, Jericho understanding how to get people over, how to get himself over. And at the time, Rick, as you've stated several times, Rick was a shadow of himself, extremely insecure, didn't believe in, in himself, and was second-guessing everything. And it was an opportunity to say, you know what? You're Ric Flair. Go out and beat him, beat him with your finish. And I thought it worked great. It was the right call and the right thing to do, and it worked
0: no, it absolutely worked. And, and it's an underrated match. And you see Jericho here pulling out all the stops. Jericho had, had obviously been a student of the game, growing up a big wrestling fan. And I imagine is pretty excited about being in a match like this here because just a few years prior, Flair was the top guy in WCW and Jericho sort of felt like he was being held down. Did you ever have a conversation with Jericho about him being excited to work with Flair here?
1: Yes. Good God, it's Ric Flair. Right. It's no different than Undertaker going to Vince and saying, I want to work with Flair at WrestleMania. He was Ric Flair. Right. And the other part that kind of went through my mind is here Rick is 53 years old, and I'm, I'm going back. This is 2002. Go back to 1992 when Vince felt at 43 years old that Rick was too old for the WWF and that he wanted Rick to get a facelift. And here we are ten years later. He's still and there. Rick's going over this this kid in Jericho with the figure four. And, Go figure.
0: And, and he's going over right now in Atlanta. Uh shout out to Rick and obviously prayers are with the family. as he still hey Rick, I love you. Still trying to reverse that figure four down there in Atlanta. We're pulling for you, bud. Uh, Let's talk about Charles Robinson. What was the rap on Charles? Would Rick request him for most of his big matches? It feels like he did a lot of big matches for Sean and for Rick, but we're seeing less and less of him these days. You know, why do you think that is? Can you freestyle a guess? And can you tell us, you know, who was a big fan of Charles and who would campaign for him?
1: Charles was a great referee, and Charles, there certain guys that work better w- with other guys. So Flair and Charles actually, you know, they had a rapport for a long time, going back to WCW and also Jericho. So it's a logical, when you have a referee that you enjoy working with that knows, it's, it's like dancing. Whoever you're working with in the ring, you like working with a certain guy, you want to work with them a lot. Same thing with the referee. If the referee knows your moves, knows your mannerisms, you want that referee in the ring if versus having to call everything with a new referee who's in the wrong place, doesn't know your moves. Um, so Rick definitely loved working with Charles. So we tried to match up referees with the talent in the ring. And if you notice, that's kind of kind of the norm. You'll see the, uh, the same referee with the same guys an awful lot
0: overall you know this 2002 year is pretty critical for Rick what was the uh, what was the general impression from the office about Rick's performances in 2002 I mean he's working with big show Austin Vince Undertaker Eddie Guerrero Chris Jericho he's got all the big big names here uh, is this at the time did it feel like maybe this is Vince's Uh, opportunity to let Rick have his last hurrah, little did we know, he would keep going, or what was the takeaway?
1: Yes, (laughs) to answer your question, in Vince's mind, this was, you know, give Rick a year, maybe a year and a half, put him back in the ring, let him get kind of a nice little farewell, one last hurrah before he hangs the boots up and goes away. Right. And we would have him as an on-air character. We would use him as an ambassador, a goodwill ambassador, outside of the ring, and continue to be Ric Flair. Little a way to just get him out there.
0: Little did we know he still had <laughs> a half a dozen more years than him, and he'd keep going. Uh, somebody else he would keep going is Paul Heyman. He's doing a promo backstage with Brock here, and he's referring to him as the next big thing. Um, Whose idea was that for Paul Heyman to be paired with Brock? And then most importantly, uh, for him to be called the next big thing. That sounds like a Paul Heyman idea. What did it sound like when he pitched it?
1: 100% Mr. Heyman's idea, sir. Because Brock Lesnar is the next big thing. And the only person to handle his career going forward would be me. But I will not be an agent. I will be... Unadvised. Thank
0: you. Let's volley on over to Edge, Eddie Guerrero. I can't believe this is this card, man. So far, we've had Ray and Kurt, and and, and then we had Flair and Jericho, and now we've got Edge and Eddie. Um, I'm curious because this is an era of Edge where he's not really uh, the main eventer, but he's no longer the tag guy. He's trying to make a name as a single. He's, he's scooting to the ring here in a new white trench coat, Uh, the the dirt sheets at the time, right? I'm not sure what it is, but he is just missing something as a worker. And unless he finds it, I don't think the people are ever going to buy him as a top guy. Uh, That's what Brian Alvarez wrote about him. What did you think of of Edge here at this time? Obviously, we know that Brian would would prove to be incorrect, or maybe he says Edge found it. But Edge certainly became a top guy. But this character Edge right here does sort of feel like He's not really sure who he is. Your
1: thoughts? Edge Edge wasn't sure who he was, but I will I will say this about Edge: from day one, he had it, right. and he had that intangible it that was special that we did know that he was going to be a top guy. There was a there was just time getting him to that place, and I think that just a sidebar: the light bulb with Edge was when. We put him with Vicky Guerrero, in my opinion. I right. thought that that was... That was what the, leveled him up. Oh, my God. He he went into Heath Ledger mode. He became that character. He lived it. He breathed it. And that took him over the edge. And it was during... Get that? See how I did that? Yeah. Took edge over the edge. But uh, this was just a time that he was coming into his own. And we knew that there was something there and just looking to find it and hoping it was going to come out here.
0: Uh, this is one of those um, really, really great matches to me because we see these guys really work on a body part, and maybe that's the old-school fan in me, but they're trying to tell a story here with Edge's shoulder, and, right. and I thought it was phenomenal. It gets three stars from Alvarez. I thought it was great, though. There's a spot here somewhere in there where – Edge and, and Eddie are on the top rope, and Edge shoves him, or Edge gets shoved off, um, and he, he lands on the bad shoulder, and then Eddie does a splash on the bad shoulder, and Taz even says Jesus, and it's just also because they're they're doing such a great job of selling, hey man, he can't hang on here, when all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Edge hits the spear and gets the pin. A great story. I love the match. It really highlighted what a great performer Eddie Guerrero was to me. What did you think?
1: It was logical. Everything that they did in the match was logical. And they told the story from beginning to end. And this brought me back to the time, and I'll say this publicly, I love Michael Cole, but I absolutely positively hate the fact that Michael Cole calls. Eddie Guerrero, Eddie Eddie Guerrero, right? Vicky Guerrero, Chavo Guerrero, it's Guerrero, and uh, Michael's wife is Hispanic. He should know this stuff, but he just had a, a mental blank with the Guerrero name. I guess he must have had a Guerrero somewhere in, in his uh, in his past that he just couldn't get it out. But that drove me nuts throughout this entire match. The the match was logical and told a beautiful story. And the commentators, I thought, told a beautiful story as well. They knew what the hell they were talking about, and they knew what they had to get across. And, again, go study this match. You want to be a wrestler? You want to learn how to tell a story inside the ring? When the bell rings, this is a beautiful one.
0: You know, it's funny because you can't see my notes here on this side, and I swear I wrote, uh, this seems like a great match to recommend to aspiring wrestlers to watch because, you know, they managed to have an incredible match where they tell a story and work a body part, but they still get all their high spots in. So it doesn't have to just be Ole Anderson working a shoulder. You can do some other crazy shit in there too and still tell a story, and and that's what they did here. Let me ask you here, was at this point Eddie Guerrero almost like the gatekeeper to being a top guy? It feels like this is a little bit of a test to see, hey, what does Eddie think about him? Can Eddie get a good match out of him? Can Eddie get a top guy match out of him? Because we would continue to see his career kind of go up. But if this match would have been a stinker, does that just career look the same, or is this kind of a litmus test of sorts?
1: Without it actually being a litmus test, yes, it was. Because if you, if you get out there and you're going to stink the joint out with Eddie Guerrero, then you cannot have a good match. So, yes, there was a lot, there was a lot of onus on Eddie to get the very best out of him. And if you can hang, then we know you can hang. But if you, you're you going to go out there and stink it up, then, by God, maybe there's no hope. On the, and yes, yes and no. It, it just was two great guys together with a good story.
0: On the way here, of course, Edge had won the King of the Ring the prior year, so he had a little bit of momentum for a while as a singles worker. Since Eddie had come back to the WWE a few months prior, he had already won and lost the Intercontinental title to RVD. He was starting a feud with Steve Austin before Austin walked out. Uh, he, he worked in the King of the Ring against Ric Flair. So these guys are both very active, but it feels like one of these guys is going to be leveled up. And that night uh, it was Edge. And, and I do think it's funny that, you know, we're in the middle of talking about this. And you say, hey, the way he became a top guy to me is working with Eddie's wife. Isn't that awesome?
1: <laughs> it all comes
0: around. Uh, Next up, we see the promo for Our Season Never Ends. This is a commercial right in the middle of a pay-per-view. At the time, there's some some rumblings that Major League Baseball may be going on strike, um, and we may not have baseball that season. Whose idea was it to push this and do it on pay-per-view, in fact?
1: Well, it was was a campaign we were doing on television. It was the campaign at the time to just show everybody, hey, they're going to leave you, and they don't care about you, the fans. They're more worried about their contracts, and they're more worried about themselves. We're worried about the fans. Our season never ends. We will always be here for you 52 weeks a year, 365 days a year, and you can always count on us, by God. Well, unless you walk out. Uh, next up, we've <laughs> we've got the, uh, uh, the
0: the evil Canadians, the un-Americans, uh, taking on Booker T and Goldust. Um, the un-Americans, help me understand. You know, I know that I'm going to get some shit for this, but it's Test, Christian, and Lance, and it's an underrated group in my opinion. I, I kind of dug this. I kind of dug the guys. I didn't really understand the upside down flag and doing a no two that feels a little bit like poor taste. Uh, but I think some of these guys are just criminally underrated. How did it come together? Whose idea was it? Uh, and in your opinion, was this really just kind of piggybacking Brett's 1997 angle on some level?
1: They're on Americans. Regal was also, uh, going to be a part of this group as well. The, Idea behind it. It was Vince's idea. He loved it. Vince loves anything that is, you know, uh, nationalist and and show your American pride and America. We're America. And America hates foreigners, especially those damn Canadians, (laughs) you know, especially after that war that we had, you know, there with Canada and all, and all the horrible stuff that they did to us. But Vince gets caught up in, in us versus them an awful lot. Right. And it was an opportunity to take some guys that he really didn't know what to do with right? and let's throw some heat on them. You couldn't at, at that time, we eventually ended up doing it, but you, you couldn't go and, and get a Middle Easterner and do that. So we'll do it with Canadians and they'll just bash America because America hates that. The problem was that what was being written for these guys was some pretty heavy stuff, and Christian and Tess both lived in Tampa and were American citizens. I think they're American citizens, but – now they're all Canadian, but um, they were afraid of the heat. They didn't – Maybe afraid is the wrong word, but they did not embrace the heat. They did not relish going out there and saying these things, even though it is, you know, it's fiction. You're just playing a part. You're reading someone else's words, someone else's idea. You're going out and portraying something else. We know you're not really un-American. We know you really don't hate America. But go out and play this part and get people to hate you and to boo you. Those guys didn't like that. They, they were uncomfortable with that. So the words, when they said them, they did not ring true. They didn't ring true to them. They didn't ring true to the audience. And it was a fart in church. Regal was the only guy that was interested in really going out and getting heat.
0: I mean, do you think this was, you know, I mean, you're on board with this upside down flag business just a year after September 11th? No, I hated it.
1: Absolutely hated it. I, I hated the whole un-American uh, – the whole un-American gimmick and idea because, again, the country was unified at this time. Right. And for for once, America was feeling good about themselves. And like I said, because they're feeling good about uh, about themselves, do you go out? Do you find an Osama bin Laden-type character? No, that's too close to home. Don't want to do that. But uh, go out and find someone anti-American, and we'll hate them because we're so unified. I just felt that that, that type of heel and that type of storyline had run its course. Did, I, th- I just think that that the business was beyond that, especially at this point.
0: Did you think that in 97 when you brought the Sultan in, or did you think that in 91 when you did the slaughter thing?
1: When did oh, in 91, it- I was 100% on board with that. Um, when did it jump the shark for you? Uh, here, okay. Um, and, and I'll tell, you, but here and I'll tell you why. Because it was the first time that America had ever really been attacked on the mainland, right? Like that. So it, it and it was fresh and it was still new. America had never been attacked. We'd never we never had anybody come in and do that on on our soil, our mainland. Yes, they did it in in Hawaii, but. This was brand new, man. It was still fresh, and I just thought it was just too far, too much, too far, too soon.
0: I'm a big Lance Storm fan. I always enjoyed his matches, but I feel like Vince had a strong opinion one way or another. Did Vince have a Lance Storm impression or a takeaway, or what did Vince think of Lance? <laughs> <sighs>
1: match over yet
0: All right, so let me ask you Bruce Richard you thought Lance's matches were boring
1: I think Vince felt Lance was boring
0: but that was kind of his gimmick right I mean his gimmick was to be that way
1: okay Uh, that's his gimmick he did it well I'm just saying I I don't think I don't think a boring gimmick is something that is going to sell a lot of tickets in my opinion I thought that Lance
0: uh, bell to bell excellent I mean, hard to beat. I mean, the guy's outstanding. I I guess I meant in terms of, you know, he's not putting on silly face paint and he's not doing, you know, ridiculous screaming promos. He was very about his business, and I thought it was kind of old school. I I dug Lance Storm. Well, what did he think about Christian? What did Vince think about Christian?
1: Vince felt that uh, we should put a blue dot on Christian's face and have the blue dot follow him around wherever Wherever he was in the match or whenever he did promos. Just get a big blue dot. What's that thing that they do when they when they, they have the people up on the up on the uh the, the newsstand in the courtroom, you know, and the, the jury, and they put blue dots on their face. And someone testifies and you don't want to see their face, it's a blue dot. Blech. I'll put a blue dot on him. Now it's gonna be gonna be some tricky editing there, but just get a blue dot that's what he thought. This is
0: real life right now.
1: Oh, you can't make that one up.
0: He actually pitched putting a fucking blue dot on one of his own contracted
1: performers faces. More more than seven times. Yeah.
0: That'll get him over.
1: Who kept talking him out of that? (laughs) Uh, the reality of trying to logistically do it.
0: Oh, so excited. nobody was like, oh, don't do that to Christian. It was just fuck boss. That's a lot of work. Can we not? Man, man.
1: Yeah. It's like, geez, this to <laughs> add like, how
0: about a blue days. mask? Can we just do like a blue mask? No, it's gotta be a dot. I'll be able to see his eyes and his nose through a mask. I want a dot. Um, do you think Christian knows this story? I don't know if
1: he does or not. I'm sure he does by now. Sure. It's been out there. I mean, I in revelation,
0: a blue dot, blue dot. He's Christian's fucking rolling back prices, I
1: guess. And, and I will say this about Christian from when Christian and edge came in at the same time into our developmental system. And we saw them and and spent a week with them. I used to say, and and, and this probably helped kill Christian in the beginning, uh, (laughs) um, I used to say, you know, in my opinion, Christian was probably, for a long time, the best pure worker on the roster. Wow. That son of a bitch could do any and everything. He was believable. He was smooth. um, Loved his work. And I thought, and and my praise probably just bit him in the ass from the get-go. And then later on, once... You know, I thought he did well for himself. I I was thoroughly entertained by Christian um, for many years, but I thought that you put you put somebody in the ring with Jay, he was going to get everything out of him.
0: That seems like that's a t-shirt from Blue Dot to Champion because he would go on to be World Champion. And so, let me ask on the Blue Dot: Did did Vince just think that Christian didn't have any charisma, or that he just that he didn't like his work? He thought so he was he, boring. Did he not like just, his face?
1: He, felt he, he just felt that he had no personality. That's amazing. I know.
0: Um, well, let's talk about somebody who we know has some personality. How fucking great were Booker T and Goldust together? Goldust had come back earlier this same year. How did he compare in here in 02 to the Goldust of all, in your opinion? And what can you tell us about this Goldust-Booker T pairing at the
1: time? Okay. This, the Dust Booker T pairing is a brainchild of Brian Giewertz and Brian was entertained by Booker and Goldust. He liked, he liked Goldust. He loved the character and liked Dustin an awful lot. And Booker and Goldust together was just instant chemistry and they could do any and everything. God, their shit was so entertaining. Brian could write something and deliver it to them, and they would perform it to the T. And it and it was fun. Everybody kind of looked forward to it. So I think that it was a time that people got to see the acting chops. And, and, you know, you were talking about earlier the WWF Studios and Booker T. The stuff that he was doing with Goldust was the reason that Vince saw. God damn, he's a star. Look at him. And – Chocolate all over chocolate muscles. Yes. Vascular creamy. Oh, sorry. But it, it was, it was this time and I thought that the guys had great chemistry. They enjoyed each other and two great workers. I think that they both were able to breathe life into one another.
0: Uh, the match is pretty fun. I enjoyed it. It got three stars from Alvarez. Um, he would write, a very old-school tag match. Booker finally got the hot, hot tag and ran wild. Sure enough, uh, this meant it was time for Tess to hit the ring. Ref took a bump. Booker hit the axe kick on Storm and Christian. Then Test killed him with the kick of doom. Christian got the cover in pinfall when the ref woke up. Loud boos for that. Uh, what did you think of the match? I thought it was a pretty fun match for what it was. But then again, I enjoy the Un-Americans.
1: Okay. Worst match of the card. Really? It tells you, okay. Tells you how great the card is. Right. Look at the guys involved in this. Gold, <laughs> Booker, Lance and Christian. It was a great match. It was it was old school. They told a simple story. So for this to be the worst match on the card speaks volumes to everybody else because this was a damn good match. Well, you can sit back and go, damn, there wasn't anything that I wouldn't want to see again. Let me ask you this Goldust as
0: an in-ring performer, 1995 or 2002 95, 1995 or 2017 17. Isn't that crazy? 22 years later. Yeah. Uh, the concerto was a big deal around this time and they're teasing one here. I- any memories of one going awry? This feels like something that if you don't do it right, you could
1: really hurt somebody. Well, I wouldn't let anybody but uh, Edge and Christian do it to me. But um, I don't think that I cannot ever remember one going awry. And it was safe enough with those two guys doing it. The guys that allowed them to do it trusted them. So, fortunately, knock on wood, you know, no one ever got hurt doing it. You
0: know, I know we we referenced uh, the Spinner Rooney earlier with The Undertaker, but seeing um Booker tried to work one into a match here with the Rooney. it made me wonder and this is around the same time of course that we've got the people's elbow and some other kind of silly moves in wrestling and we're on the heels of the worm was Vince a fan of the Rooney? this feels like something he would have had trouble pronouncing Rooney. What's so damn hard about that it just feels I like he wouldn't have, he, like he wouldn't have remembered it uh, my apologies. I was trying to be funny. You're clearly not in the
1: mood. You know, no, it, it, it's, it's, he looked at it as, God, look at him go. He does the spinny thing and the Rooney. Yeah, gotta love it.
0: There we go. That's what I was looking for.
1: Um, I love those Roonies. <laughs> I don't like it when they put cheese on it, though. Uh, Damn Cornette
0: used to smother his in cheese. Speaking of smothered and cheese, talk me through the make-out contest with Nidia at WWF New York. This is one of the most interesting things on WWE pay-per-view. Um, and I guess as you're talking about it, I'm going to need you to wrap us up here talking about this with you doing an impression of Jamie Noble promoting the kiss here. My God, this was hilarious. It just feels like something Vince McMahon would love. Woo. If you haven't already, kids... Go watch this Jamie Noble Nydia at WWF New York make out contest. It's, uh, it's something Come to say. Come on,
1: baby. Come on, baby. Get your tongue down up in there. Get your tongue out there. Get that tongue down that boy's throat. Come on, baby. You can do it. Get down there and squeeze you some of that buzz, baby. Come on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see a little spit going in there. That's what I'm talking about, baby. Save some for later now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Get that lip lock in there, baby. Oh, hoo, hoo. Oh man, uh, okay. Jamie, and let's Nitty just and let, I... let's
0: roll credits. We're done. We're not going to beat that. <laughs> we're not going to beat that.
1: Oh, well, Jay, Jamie and, and Niddy and I have gone out to the um, Playboy Mansion for, to do some vignettes because since I don't know when we're ever going to talk about Nitty again, and half is there now. The Playboy Mansion. This was during a time that they were very friendly to us, and they were letting us do a lot of stuff. And I, I had a pretty good rapport with the PR guy there. Um, but Heff can be a little um, eccentric at times. Really, really nice guy, but a little eccentric, believe it or not. So he's he's home, he's working, he's up in his bedroom, you know, and and all this stuff. And they're allowing us to to shoot on the outskirts of, of the house. And the front door, I, I had Jamie going up and, and ringing the doorbell and demanding that Hugh Hefner come out and talk to him. And I had a a, a, a guy inside that was going to answer the door and so on and so forth. And I'm showing Jamie. I said to Jamie, "When you go up to the door, you just like hit right here. Here's the uh, doorbell. You just push right under it. Don't ring the doorbell because it's a real doorbell. Do not ring the doorbell. Just push." Right here, and raise hell. You have no you idea you're going to enter this door right now. My baby's going, she's going to spread right there for you and all this shit. Well, Jamie goes up, and we're shooting all this. And Jamie goes up, and he's actually hitting the doorbell. Well, I don't know this because I'm watching a monitor, and I can't see the actual button from the way we're shooting it. And all of a sudden, Hefner's personal security guy comes to the door. And opens the door, and he is livid because Jamie has been sitting there hitting the doorbell, ringing the doorbell. Uh, Hef is upstairs in his bedroom on a conference call, and he's hearing the ding-dong, 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 ding just over and over. And then through the window, he can hear this, hey, you ever i'm gonna get you out of here when you get out here you gonna look at my baby's teeth and he's gonna love her. And when she spreads that thing you just gonna have to have it in your magazine because my guy my baby me she my beautiful thing i don't know why you put tour wilson in your magazine because i got the hot damn thing for you and the security guard opens the door and we almost got thrown out we, i mean it was yeah that that took some talking to but uh, jamie noble man is a classic uh, one of the most underrated, underutilized guys in the business. Well, I don't if know if he, he's here's a guy who, if he had been six inches taller and maybe just put twenty, thirty more pounds on him, top guy, top, top champion forever. Today he would be. Uh, I think he's still one of the
0: champions backstage. It would not surprise me to hear that he's running SmackDown or Raw
1: anytime. No, I that wouldn't shock me at all. Great mind for the business, but but talent just innate natural talent. Um, do you think we should get in there, baby? Get it in there. Come on, you know what to do. This is the (laughs) wrong thing you do. I think (laughs) backwards, come on, backwards. I I don't know what I'm talking
0: about. Uh, let me just say, uh, that Jamie Noble is my new favorite impression of yours. I didn't know you could do it, but now that I know, I didn't, um. She's going to go ahead and spread that thing for you.
1: (laughs) Her arms. Welcome in, baby.
0: Oh, I love it. Um, Next, if you haven't seen the skit, man, you got to go see it. You're missing out.
1: Uh, I was was crying, watching it, laughing. Just. (laughs) (laughs) It's good shit.
0: Uh, Next up, we see Bischoff and Stephanie in the back. And, And Bischoff says something to Stephanie like. We'll see who's on top later. Uh, That feels like a Brian or Vince line.
1: Who who should claim the credit for that? Me. Okay, cool. We're watching it live. We don't know what the hell they're going to do live. Next up,
0: we've got uh, Benoit coming to the ring, and they have the belt blurred out on the network.
1: What's up with that? I have no idea, and I didn't even notice that. I saw somebody on Twitter ask that, and I, I didn't even notice it when I was watching it.
0: It's really, really weird here. Uh, Tony Chimmel is on the announcing duties here and and hands the mic to Howard Finkel. I suppose the gimmick here is one's the Raw announcer, one's the SmackDown announcer. Uh, It was cool to see Fink call call a match here and introduce a guy, but I don't know that a lot of people listening are in the loop on Tony Chimmel's job and how it has evolved. Can you catch everybody up about Chimmel's
1: history with the company? Tony Chimmel was on the ring crew when I first started in 1987. He was one of the guys that uh, hung out with Joey Morella. He was a friend of Joey Morella's and Joey Morella's gorilla monsoon son. And those guys always hung out and they were a part of the ring crew. And as it evolved, uh, Tony was put out in the ring to be a ring announcer one night, did a pretty good job. So they, they kept him and he was able to go out and, and be a friggin' ring announcer. The fact that we actually put him on TV just astonishes me because Tony ain't a pretty man. And that was always funny, but neither was Howard.
0: I was going to say, I mean, the, the other option is Howard. Um, let's talk about Howard because Howard's not on TV anymore. How was he phased out? What did that conversation go down like? Whose idea was it? Was it events call? What's he doing with the company these days as best you know?
1: These days, I don't know that Howard is doing much of anything beyond working on the uh, WWE.com. I saw him at a convention in New Jersey not long ago and seemed to be very happy and doing well, but he's mainly doing appearances and being Howard. But he still goes into the office every day and goes in and works on WWE.com.
0: Um when was he removed Finkel. Good uh, evening ladies and gentlemen When did he get moved out of the
1: ring out of out of the ring Um I guess 2000 right about 2000 when Lillian Garcia we had hired Lillian Garcia to be a part of Originally, we hired her to be a part of a show on Univision, Los Super Astros, El Bocadito. And uh, Vince liked her look. And when he saw the other girl that we had for Super Astros, he liked her look better for the on-screen deal. And we put Lillian out to try her out as a ring announcer. So you have Howard Finkel or Lillian Garcia sure. in 2000. Which one would you rather look at Howard? Okay. Uh, so we've got, uh, RV Huntsville Conrad. You can look at me every day. All right.
0: RVD gets a win over Crispin Benoit here to win the intercontinental title. Um, pretty good match here. Three and three quarters is what Alvarez gives it. What'd you think of the match?
1: (laughs) Tremendous. Um, Whew. They beat the shit out of each other. One, it was solid. And being able to watch you know, Van Damme, because people, there were people that looked at Rob as being stiff and being hard to work with. Benoit loved that. Benoit loved you to be stiff, because Chris would be stiff right back with you. And their styles, I felt, meshed very well. It was really, on paper, you would think they would clash. It wouldn't be that great. But going back and watching it, I just it makes you remember how great Benoit was, bell to bell, in the ring. Sure. And just sit there and say, Man, Van Dam, you give you give Rob somebody that can dish it out and hang with him. I thought he shined in this match. I thought both guys it played to their strengths.
0: Uh, these guys are working very stiff, as you said, and both have a reputation for working snug. RVD's really laying the kicks in. You gotta assume that, as you said, Benoit asked him to. They're both here with with busted, bloody lips. Uh, Benoit misses the headbutt off the top, which, in hindsight, maybe not the best call. RVD misses the big frog splash. Uh, Benoit goes to put the crossface on, but RVD makes the ropes. Uh, eventually, you know, these guys go back and forth doing lots of different uh, flips and and Northern light suplexes and. I mean, there's a lot of big moves going on here. And eventually, Benoit gets a cross face, and and RVD even manages to get out of that. Eventually, Benoit goes for a top rope back superplex, uh, but RVD reverses it into a high cross and then hits the frog splash and gets the win clean. Uh, Alvarez would write, the total wrong man won this match. Finish came out of nowhere because the ref all of a sudden started rushing them towards the finish, saying they needed to go home. With about five more minutes, this would have really been something else. Benoit looked like the best wrestler in the entire world here. What would you think of that assessment from Alvarez? Did the wrong guy win? I got to say, in hindsight, it did feel like, and this is me saying this, not Alvarez. um, Let's give them an intercontinental title switch at SummerSlam. Was the office split on this, or why was the decision made to put RVD over Benoit here?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to know uh, who who said that the match was rushed and the referee was telling them to go home. You don't Is believe that him? was the Is case? It's him? It's, no, it wasn't rushed. It, it wasn't rushed at all. It was simply a buildup for the match. It was simply a buildup for the finish to get to that spot that everything's going, going, going. Guys are going for false finishes, false finish, false finish. And then finally, out of nowhere, bam, he hits the frog splash and he gets him for a three count. That is – I thought the story was beautifully told, and you can debate all day long. The right guy won, the wrong guy won. If if Benoit had gone over, that you'd have the same people saying, oh, well, I don't know why they didn't put the title on RVD. And it was a beautiful match with a beautiful story that I thought, you know – Got everything across, but it wasn't rush. I love when these guys sit there and they think that they that they know what the hell's going okay. on. And
0: all right, let, let's move on here. Uh, the decision was made a month prior to have Benoit uh, defect over to SmackDown, and he took the IC belt with him. Well, here the IC belt is coming back to Raw a, a little after a month later. It was part of the plan here just to keep that belt on Raw, and that's the reason RVD gets the win. More so than which direction are we wanting to go? Yes. Okay. Um, both RVD and Benoit, as we said, both have a reputation for working snug. Do you remember any of the boys having really particularly strong feelings about one or the other? I, I heard one top guy once say casually to another guy who was working RVD on Raw, oh, shit, you're working Van Damme? Get your fucking hands up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you? Um, do you remember hearing any... Any sort of uh, strong feelings one way or another about the way either guy had a tendency to work snug?
1: Yeah, and there were some guys that liked it, some guys that didn't. Like I said, Benoit and RVD working with each other, they love it. Jericho and Benoit used to beat the hell out of each other. They had an agreement. Hit me anywhere other than in the nose or the mouth. Hit me anywhere else on my head. I don't care as hard as you want to. Um, van Dam had a reputation for having really snug kicks and, and just and he would throw them but anything that rob gave rob would gladly take back and he's a tough son of a gun that would stand up and go toe to toe with anybody so it's it's one thing to just be the guy that likes to dish it out but if you're not willing to take it then you don't you don't really deserve to dish it out but no some guys some guys like to work a little bit lighter some guys like to work snug
0: it's funny the, uh, the parallels, as far as in-ring go, that these the, the two guys, Benoit and Guerrero kind of work together because um, ultimately Guerrero has to miss some time because of some personal issues and he's away from the company. Well around that same time is when Chris Benoit has to have neck surgery and he winds up missing quite a bit of time. So Benoit hadn't been back a terribly long time here. When do you think the decision was made, for different reasons, of course, we can trust these guys and we're going to push them to the main events because they've kind of been in this mid-card U.S. title, intercontinental title, but now in 18 months, they're both going to be world champs. Carry me through when you remember that sort of becoming the talk of the direction we should go.
1: Well, for, for Eddie in particular, it, it was – just kind of came and that that was a battle for for benoit it came from having uh matches with hunter and hunter just loved working with benoit he he loved he loved the matches and then sean came to him and sean got involved in the whole thing and they were like you know what what better way to really get chris over have him beat us both you know have let's go to uh WrestleMania put the title on him because people will believe it. It was it was just a steady, no different than Stone Cold Steve Austin. When Steve Austin first came into the company, he worked every night doing jobs for Shawn Michaels um, as champion. And his work, every single night, he worked harder than the next guy and would have the best match on the card. Benoit was doing that. Guerrero was doing that every single night. And you can't deny talent. So it was just a progression over time that you sat there and went, those are the guys that people are reacting to because they're having the best matches. And in Eddie's case, his personality, everything that he was given, every issue, every angle, every storyline, he hit it out of the park. And Benoit, everything that you put him in, no matter what it was, no matter who the opponent was, Chris delivered on the in ring. So you you looked at those two guys and said, you know what, Uh, let's give them a a chance.
0: Uh, The next night on Raw, uh, and it happens in Madison Square Garden, Rob Van Dam defeated the hardcore champ, Tommy Dreamer. So Rob is at this point unifying both the Intercontinental and the hardcore titles. And that's actually the last time we ever see the hardcore title in the WWE. Why was the hardcore title abolished?
1: I don't think that Vince ever expected the hardcore title to become what it became in the first place. Right. The hardcore title was was a, was a gimmick, a one-time gimmick that he was doing with Mankind. Right. Um, and the fact that it caught on, he just looked at it like, why do we have hardcore matches? Ugh. And he didn't like the matches, and he felt that it had run its course. Time to move on, and I think that it, at this point in time, he kind of felt that the hardcore title represented that ECW crap, which, as we see later on, will be revived. But he just was sick of it at this time.
0: After the uh, Benoit RVD match, we again see Steph and Bischoff in the dressing room, and Bischoff is gloating to her about how now she can watch the IC title, uh, IC title on Raw Uh, And she does some sort of weird laugh and walks away. Um, What'd you think of the laugh? This laugh just... I don't know why, but it cracked me up. I watched it twice.
1: (laughs) And was it any different the second time you watched it?
0: No, I I guess I was thinking, God damn, I hope Bruce produced this horse shit. Because if he did, I'm going to rib him forever. I did. So next up, we have got Undertaker Test. Uh, and test is someone who who left us too early. Bruce, were you shocked by that, or was he having trouble even during his WWE run?
1: I was shocked by it, and I don't re- I don't remember him really having any problems when I was there. So it 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 did shock me, and I hate it any time that someone leaves us before you know before their time, and and especially at a young age like that, it's just tragedy. And Andrew was a, a great guy. Um, yeah, sucks. At one point, was
0: Vince high on test as a top guy? And if that changed, when and why?
1: Well, yes. Uh, Vince was high on test from the first time that we saw him. And he came into our first developmental with Edge and Christian and Val Venus and all of those guys. The, the kiss of death with test was – Russo, who believe it or not, you know, didn't didn't always look at uh, in ring talent and looked at guys and would have ideas and, and he looked at it as this is acting. I can just put anybody into that spot and they'll work, you know, because I'm such a great writer, bro. Whatever I write, if they do it right, they'll be a star. Um so he envisioned test being a part of DX early on. Wow. Um, and uh, Hunter hated it. Sean hated it. Uh, everybody hated it. And Russo made the comment that he's as big as Kevin Nash, but he's younger and he'll be better. And that, of course, just set Sean and Hunter off. You know, he's new Kevin Nash. And then on top of that, what and again, we don't we don't know this from the talent relations side. This is when I was really just doing talent relations and getting in new talent. From my vantage point, I wanted to test and developmental to go out and learn and to get better because he's a big guy, had a lot of potential. He wasn't ready for prime time by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't realize Russo had this idea for him and had already approached people about it. It was like, he can't go, man. He's not ready. He's, he's not seasoned. He's just not ready yet. Um, so he's at TV. He being test. And I guess Hunter and Sean were talking to him and found out he'd only had like five matches in front of people at that time. So five matches and Russo wants to make him a part of DX. He wasn't ready. And so that was just a little backstory on test. We, we did think that he had potential. We did think that there was a big upside to him. But he kind of. Was missing it throughout his career. He never got really to that next level.
0: But why? When did it change? When did Vince say, "Nope, he's not a top guy. Stop writing shit for him. We're not doing that."
1: I uh, probably. Probably took a couple years because the first few years were, you know, Vince. He's still learning, right? And, and it, it wasn't. It wasn't fair to him. We put him in a in a lose lose situation. Sure. Because he, he wasn't ready, and we put him into a top spot, and we put him in a position where there were so many eyeballs on him, and everybody was looking for him to fail. So he couldn't win. And then he was against the eight ball coming in. Um, I, think, I do think that if he had more seasoning and just more time before he ever made his debut, that it might have been a little bit different. But I think his confidence was shot. And... He thought because he came in in that top spot that he was already there and already over, and he wasn't.
0: Taker is over here as the American Badass. We haven't touched on this character a whole lot on our show so far. Anything you can tell us about the American Badass character? I'm sure we'll get into it long form, but give us a little bit of the American Badass.
1: I am American Badass. Watch me dump when I can... I'm a great singer. Uh, Compared to what? Uh, I don't know. The American Badass was just a reinvention for Taker. It was something to get him out of the dead man persona and to be able to let that character grow. I don't think that... I don't think Vince ever saw The Undertaker in its original incarnation being gone forever, but I do believe that Mark... Saw the American badass as the character that he wanted to be. He wanted to be the Undertaker, but not having to do the Dead Man Walk and the uh, the signature Undertaker stuff. If that makes any sense to you, Undertaker Mark Calloway's a motorcycle riding badass son of a gun, and that was the American badass character was more true to who Mark Calloway is than I guess the Undertaker character, and he liked it.
0: What do you think the American badass character didn't resonate with the crowd
1: more? They just missed the old dead man, and that's what they wanted? They knew the dead man, and that's what they wanted. They they wanted their old undertaker. They wanted the dead man. They wanted the head snap. They wanted the tombstone. Of course,
0: eventually we get here with um, all of the Canadians doing a run-in. Taker beats them all up. He dominates everybody. Lots of boots and chair shots and... Then ultimately, he hits test with the Tombstone for the clean pin, and he's celebrating with the flag in the middle of the ring afterwards. So it's a feel-good moment, you know, against the Un-Americans with everybody's favorite, the Undertaker. Uh, Brian Alvarez gave it two and a quarter stars, and I actually agree with him. I thought this was the worst match on the card. I thought the tag match earlier was better. Did you prefer this match even over the tag match? What did you like about
1: it? I did because I enjoy watching, uh, Taker go back and work. You know, he was, he was doing leapfrogs in the match and he was working like a wrestler and that was always fun for me because I know how much he enjoyed it. So that's probably just my personal preference and, uh, watching that he worked, you know, he worked the arm and he worked not like the dead man. So that's probably why I enjoyed it. It was a little bit different. Yeah, I, mean, you know, I, I didn't think it was a bad match at all.
0: Yeah, he did some moves here. You mentioned a leapfrog, uh, and you see him, you know, climbing to the second rope and posing with the American flag—a much different presentation of the Undertaker. What did Vince think of the American badass in this iteration of Taker?
1: Vince liked it because it was different, but in Vin- in the back of Vince's mind, was were we're always going back to the Undertaker, right? I did. I just don't think that Vince ever really explain that to Mark. Because in Mark's head he was the American badass and he was going to stay the American badass. The the transition to get him back to the to Undertaker, boy, that was a battle. That was a long and we'll talk about that when we do an undertake another Undertaker in longer form over those years. But that that took a lot of convincing and and that was a battle to get him to do it.
0: How great were the Lance Storm and Christian uh, chokeslams from The Undertaker here? Get some hype, baby. Get on
1: up there. Ugh. Let's see let's see that little skinny ass of yours with the little blue dot on your face. Get up and touch them lights, baby. Let them burn that little honey and go on down. Ooh, that's good. You too, little mullet head. What's that little flat top little motherfucker in there? Get on up in there. Um, you know,
0: I know... We will talk about him again, but I don't know when we'll talk about Test again. So I got to bring it up here. You know, after the whole wedding angle goes sideways, it certainly feels like when Triple H reveals that Stephanie can't marry Test on Raw because he's already married her in a Vegas drive through, that they were building towards a big program with Test and Triple H. And you didn't say it earlier, but I feel like when that didn't happen, This is what cuts the knees out from under test and his run as a top guy. In your opinion, did Triple H, not just when he was young and not ready as a part of DX, but did Triple H crush the career of test here by not letting that feud happen?
1: Well, that was, that was why it didn't happen because he was young. That, that was the very first introduction of him. And that was the first time that the test was introduced. He had no, he had no right to be in that position. He wasn't ready, and Hunter Hunter did not want to work with him. Sean didn't want. All right. <coughs> uh, Sean didn't want to work with him. Hunter didn't want to work with him because he wasn't ready. But that that was the beginning of his career right there.
0: Well, I guess we'll we'll take it up another day. Let's talk about the video package. Speaking of Hunter, building up Sean and Hunter here. They show some clips from 1997 with DX, uh, and then they show Sean coming back in 02 with the DX shirts and the skit, and ultimately, that sets up the pedigree uh, where Triple H gets to turn on his best friend, Shawn Michaels. And there's a great line from Hunter in this package here. I use Shawn to get to the top, just like he used me to stay at the top. I thought this was one of the, the more well-done packages that were on the pay-per-view, uh, what do you think of the package and the angle to bring Sean in? And then we'll talk about the behind the scenes.
1: I uh, thought the package was excellent. And I thought the angle was excellent because it was logical and everybody can understand jealousy and everybody can understand a friendship and a bond getting broken up like that.
0: The video of someone jumping Sean from behind and then putting his head through a window, the bloody aftermath, and then the reveal from Sean enhancing the video and then challenging Hunter to a match at SummerSlam. This feels like, you know, exactly what Vince was talking about in Beyond the Mat. We make movies. Uh, what did you think of the whole uh, jumping Shawn Michaels' head through the rental car, enhancing the video, the big, great reveal? I thought it was some of the better storytelling, even if it was a little predictable.
1: Well here here's what you have. You have a guy that we didn't know what we really had in him in Shawn Michaels. He this is gonna be his one off, the only match we're gonna do. We couldn't do a, a whole lot physically with him prior to that. So you don't want you, you can't have him work a match on TV. Um, you gotta get creative in how you get him involved. And we didn't want the audience to see them have that physicality. So, yeah, you just you, you got to get creative and get out there with your storytelling. And I thought that it was beautifully done. Um, and, again, especially for us because we we had no idea what the hell we had.
0: Um, let's kind of talk about the backstage here because I think everybody knows we're going to cover this at some point long form. DX has been on the poll 9,000 times, and they lose every time. But I'm hopeful that they'll win eventually. Uh, but the story with Shawn Michaels and Triple H and DX is a fun one. It's been well documented. We'll get there eventually. Um, but Shawn ultimately becomes injured at the King of the uh, at the Royal Rumble 1998 in a casket match against the Undertaker. He goes over the top, uh, waxes back on the edge of the casket, and supposedly this causes all kinds of back problems. That leads to a rather interesting first quarter in the WWE as we build towards WrestleMania 14. Sean is not in a good place mentally, physically, or emotionally. Storms out of the press conference, and he's gone. And now this is going to be his first match back in the WWE. Uh, he has some trials and tribulations personally while he's out. Uh, he finds God. He turns his life over. Uh, he also had struggled with addiction. There's rumor and innuendo that he showed up under the influence to a WWE show once and kind of showed his ass and triple H even tried to put him in his place. And actually, according to the rumor and innuendo, take your pills, Bruce tries to have Sean removed. What can you tell us about the time in between? Because I think most people know that Sean said he was done with wrestling, never coming back, does things that are uncharacteristic of Sean. He does an RF video shoot interview. He opens a wrestling school. Thank goodness he did. We got, you know, Brian Danielson out of it. Um, and, and, and in an effort to build his own promotion, actually works a match that I think people have forgot that went down in April of 2000 for the Texas Wrestling Alliance uh, against Paul Diamond. What was going on in the downtime? Did he really get kicked out of an event? What was the relationship like with Sean and Vince during this four-year gap? What was it like with Paul and Sean, to the best of your understanding?
1: From my vantage point, there was not a whole lot. I don't remember Sean getting kicked out. That that's totally news to me. Um, maybe it, maybe it happened. I, I have no idea. I wasn't there. Don't remember that. I do remember from time to time when we would be in San Antonio or maybe Austin that Sean would come by and. Say hello, that's where Undertaker and I uh, nicknamed him the little Dutch boy when he cut all his hair off, and he had kind of a bowl cut. And we didn't even know who the hell it was when we saw him. Uh, He had stopped training. He got way out of shape. I had gone down because Sean had started his wrestling school, so the only really the only interaction that I had with Sean during that time was, Hey, do you have any talent? Right. Um, get anybody that we might want to take a look at. I'd really love to come down and spend a weekend with you and see what you've got. So at first it was, I was met with no, none of my guys ready yet to, then eventually he warmed up to the idea and I, I went to San Antonio. Sean picked me up and, went over to the house, and then uh, we went to a show. And then the next day, we went out and saw his training class with Rudy Gonzalez there. Uh, There was Spanky, Brian Kendrick. Um, There was, uh, obviously, Daniel Bryan. There was Lance Cade. And um, I want to say there were four total. I can't remember the fourth one. But he had some really good talent there. And we talked back and forth, and and Sean would get in the ring with these guys. He wouldn't take bumps, but he would show them little things. And, and I remember after watching him in the ring training these guys, we, we went to a town that night where he had a little spot show. And I said, man, you know you've got another one in you. He said, nope, I've wrestled my last match. I'm done. And I said, you know, they all say that but I'll use the old bruiser and crusher analogy. All you've got to do is go out there and give them the entrance and kick and punch and throw a super kick and they're going to be happy. His mindset was that if Shawn Michaels is going to appear, he has to be Shawn Michaels. Right. He's got to be the showstopper. He's got to be the main event. He has got to be the guy they remember, not a fragment of that guy. So he had no desire. He's like, I'm, I'm done. I'm not training anymore. And I remember he was eating a huge chocolate chip cookie. And he says, I'm eating chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> he says, I, I, I'm done. I'm done. Not, I'm not, I'm not going back in the ring. And then eventually, I don't know, six months after that is when he had the street fight that he had in, uh, San Antonio for his own promotion. And he was cleaning up his act. You know, we'd heard that he he was doing a lot better. He came down and saw us uh, in San Antonio and looked great, Uh, completely different than when I had been down and seen him in San Antonio before that. Um, Floated the idea out there. You got one more? Just one. And that's how we got here just floated it out there and he said, "Yeah, he trusted, he trusted Hunter and felt that he and Hunter could have a match, but they wanted to do a street fight so that he would be forgiven and not have to go out and have that Shawn Michaels wrestling match." So was the idea
0: always to just do the one story here with Triple H and that be
1: it? Yep. One hundred percent. One match, one time, this is it. He's not coming back. Not gonna get another one. This is it.
0: Um any sort of heat that you recall at all between Sean or Hunter here?
1: At this point, no. No, at this point they were excellent. Long lost buds. Happy to be back together. <laughs>
0: Hebner's the referee here, uh, and he has a big part in the match where he uh, admonishes Triple H for his behavior. It's not something that we see very often in a match, and it was weird kind of seeing him here because Hebner was such a staple in the WWE, and and now not so much. You were there when Hebner was, you know, exiled. Briefly tell us what happened there. We've never talked about it on the show before.
1: Uh, We were in... Gosh, somewhere in West Virginia or something like that. I, um, I can picture the building. I don't remember the particular name, but there was some kind of story that allegedly Dave and Earl had been selling uh, bootleg WWE merchandise, and they were released. It's one of those stories that has never been told uh, from really either side. And people put, you know, it's, it's all rumor and innuendo. What what I just told you, we weren't we weren't told we were got that surmised from uh, Earl later on that that's what that that's what they were accused of doing.
0: There's rumor and innuendo out there that the guy the Hebners were actually doing a bit of an embroidery type business, a screen printing business, and they were making WWE logo and branded swag but actually giving it to the boys, including the McMahons themselves.
1: That is true.
0: So the the allegation is they weren't just doing it to hook up the cast and crew. They were doing it to profiteer as well. And that's what Vince had a problem with.
1: Well, and, and apparently, uh, and again, this is all rumor and innuendo, uh, rumor and innuendo was that whoever had the shop in St. Louis or Kansas City, wherever the hell they were, um, was selling stuff out of his shop. And that, the, that
0: they had uh, made unlicensed without letting
1: WWE participate. Right, right, and that's where the rub came. And because Dave and Earl were associated with them, that that was the last straw, and they were gone. The last quick. I mean, it was it was they came in and left, and were escorted out by security. Did you think that was a
0: fair way to handle them, given their time with the company?
1: I don't know all the particulars, but it was shocking to everybody. Uh, That was definitely something that had everybody buzzing, what the hell happened there? But it's also the the culture, uh, it's the culture of the company, that things happen and and you go on with your life and and business continues, you still have your job to do and you just move forward, put your head down and go.
0: I mean, that's kind of what happened with you, right? Right. Do you think that um, if there is a flaw, because you don't you don't often kind of fault Vince with much here? Do you think that that is a character flaw? His that he can just so quickly move on and and throw so many years, you know? Because this is the Hebners have been here forever, and now because of maybe a misunderstanding. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe a misunderstanding. Their lives are forever changed. Do you think that that's maybe a character character flaw of Vince's?
1: I think it's it's a flaw, but it's also a defense mechanism for him too, because that way he he doesn't have to you know deal with it, and he can just move on. And um, you're dead to me, so he he just he just goes on and and next. So I, I guess it's it's a blessing and a curse all at the same time. Um, when you're there. You know nothing else. It's it's just man, it's 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 just the culture. It's just the way that it is. Right. And you accept it. And you accept it blindly and, and you move forward. Um, so, you know, everybody talks about Paul Heyman and the Kool-Aid. The same can be said for you know the WWE. Because once you are in that bubble, that is all that exists. Life on the outside doesn't matter and doesn't exist. Let's
0: talk about the card again, because I feel like this is maybe the strongest year as far as the card that we've ever had for returns. You've got, in 2002, Triple H, Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Shawn Michaels all coming back uh, in 2002. Definitely, you know, the biggest comeback year in history. And, And to this point on the roster, 15 of the 18 wrestlers would be uh, world champions, either past, present, or future. And Shawn Michaels is still in one of the more featured matches here after, you know, more than four years on the sidelines. And Triple H had come back just that prior January. So he's only been back for about eight months. What was the expectation going into the match? Because it feels like this blows away every expectation possible.
1: The expectations were low. I mean, I think so, that's
0: fair. You know, you've got two guys who haven't worked each other in a long time, no matter how good of friends they are. And yeah, Sean was one of the greatest of all time, but after a four and a half year hiatus, you don't expect him to come back and somehow be fucking better than before.
1: Well, also, but also, they had never worked together against each other. Not like this, so, for sure. Yeah. And, and so you you've got a lot of just unknowns. We weren't, sh- you know, <laughs> and this sounds this sounds funny, but we weren't sure what the hell Sean's body looked like. We weren't sure if the, the when the the damn uh, shirt came off and the gear came off, you know what what he's going to look like. So. We definitely didn't know after he got in the ring and, and being in front of that crowd, you can go out and do all the cardio you want, do the stair step, stepper for hours at a time. That is different than being in the ring and working a match. Completely different cardio, completely different uh, just blowing up factor. So we didn't know if Sean was going to go out there and blow up in 10 minutes. Sure. We didn't know if he was going to get out there and his back was going to seize up. Um, if he was just going to be off half a step, had no clue at all. The angle leading up to this, uh, who was in charge
0: of the majority writing for that? And who was the, who was the agent for the match? Do you remember?
1: I want to say it was probably Michael Hayes for the match at this time. Uh, Brian would have written the majority of the, of the storyline.
0: Uh, Sean has went on record as saying he didn't feel like he got closure from how his career had ended after WrestleMania 14, where he lost to Steve Austin. And so he goes to Triple H and says he wants to wrestle one more match. And and he specifically says he wants to do this because he wants his son to see him wrestle. And he asked Triple H to have the match with him. Is that the way you remember that going down, that it was important to Sean for his son to see him wrestle, much like we heard Goldberg say earlier this year?
1: Yes, definitely was. He, his son had heard about him and had seen, you know, tapes and different things, but he had never seen seen his dad wrestle.
0: Do you think, um, and I'm sure we'll cover this long form at some point, but do you think Sean's back was as injured as we were told it was at the Royal Rumble in 98? Or would Sean just burn out and had so much other stuff going on that he just needed to get out of the race car for a little while?
1: Well, I do believe that his uh, back was injured badly, but I sure. also think that um, everything else combined made, exacerbated that. Right, Exacerbated the attitude. It exacerbated the injury, and it was the right time to go away.
0: So it makes all the sense in the world that Sean wants to come back here, but it also makes sense. And Triple H has said that going into this match, Sean was scared. Sean's wife was scared. And even Sean's mom was scared. And Triple H says that he told Sean's mom something like, I won't let anything happen to your boy. Um, that feels like a big emotional dump that you're going to have in this match. And you guys all kind of felt that you had low expectations. Do you remember that being the thought amongst the writing team, amongst Vince, amongst the boys, or was it just more of a curiosity and just the natural assumption Man, four and a half years off, I mean, it's not going to be the Sean of 96.
1: No one expected the Sean of 96. And I, I, as I had said to Sean when I was in San Antonio, people aren't expecting that. They're just going to be happy to see him come back, uh, throw some punches, and by God, hit the super kick and sell. That's all he had to do. Um, And as I expressed earlier, you know, Sean wanted to be Sean Michaels of old. He had to be the showstopper in the main event. Nobody, and I mean nobody, expected what we got.
0: Probably one of the best comeback matches of all. Let's hit some of the high points here. The sidewalk slam onto the folding chair, the backbreaker under the holding chair. Holy shit, what a spot that was, knowing the history of his back and the story that had been told. And how great was Triple H being bloodied and then Sean nipping up to a big pop. The crowd was so with it. They were on that emotional roller coaster. That's when you knew to me, this is a great match. And they're pulling out all the stops here. The elbow through the table to the floor seems a little uh, uncharacteristic for a comeback match, but certainly, you know, they're wanting to pull out all the stops. They do the elbow off the ladder where beforehand Sean points to the crowd and says, I love each and every one of you. And then Sean selling from that elbow and then tuning up the band was just awesome. So one of the better closing sequences and maybe the best comeback match ever And Sean is teasing the super kick, but all of a sudden, Triple H catches the kick rather than just taking the super kick and giving the fans their happy ending. They do a pedigree counter, uh, and all of a sudden, Sean steals a pin. And Sean's victorious, but Triple H attacks him after the match with a sledgehammer. What would you think of the match? This is maybe one of the best matches of 2002. If you haven't seen it, you should go out of your way to see it. Meltzer gave it four and three quarter stars saying that, you know, this is a match that lines them up for the WWE hall of fame, uh, or the, the observer hall of fame. What'd you think?
1: Ooh. I thought that the match top to bottom, emotionally, physically, everything about it delivered on all levels. These guys went out, they're friends and you're always going to work best with somebody that you like, Um, they proved it. They tore the frigging house down and it was the right finish. It was the happy finish. But again, it was a one-off. We knew we had Hunter. We knew that what we were doing with Hunter going forward. So we had to get some heat back and and make him whole at the end. Um, It wasn't about a 50, 50 thing. It was okay. Let's make him happy. But now, you know, I got, got to worry about the guy that's going to be here tomorrow and we thought, okay, hey, great. We saw, you know, Sean's last match. He, he went out, went out in style. I don't think. Well, no, I'm not going to say that because I know better. Um, for me, I did not think that was Sean's last match. I don't. I, I look at. I look at everybody. I do. I do think we have seen Sean's last match. But I'm skeptical. I always look at all these guys from Undertaker to Angle to everybody. Is like, "Mm, they got another one left in them.
0: What was the thinking here? Obviously, they do the stretcher job. The doctors come out. Um, What was the thinking here in the sledgehammer finish? It feels like you could have just sent him home happy and let Sean get the pin with a super kick. And then if you wanted to attack him with a sledgehammer, you could. But... If you think this is his only match, why not just do it clean with the finish? Was the idea, hey, he's been gone four years, Sean's gonna have to steal a pin because at this point Triple H just passed him.
1: No, it's twofold. Honestly, twofold. Because you got Hunter. Hunter's gonna be there tomorrow, and what you're being told going in is Sean's not. Sean's right. gone. Sure. So you get your you get your happy win, you won. But now I got to get, I got to worry about the guy that's going to be here uh, tomorrow night on TV. On the other side of that, you get some heat. Now I got a match. I got to, I got to return.
0: So that's my question. When did you know this is not just a one off? That may have been what we were signing up for, but Sean's having fun at TV. So this isn't going to be, a, we're going to do a series here.
1: That's a whole nother show. Um, in the back of our mind, we were hoping that was going to be the case. In the back of our mind, we, we always hoped that Sean was coming back. In Sean's mind, in Vince's mind, in the presentation, that was it. The, the finish seems like a compromise to me. No, it's not a compromise.
0: There's no negotiation it's here. The Triple H isn't politicking to get a win. Sean's not trying to negotiate, hey, I'll take a win, no. but I'll do the screwy kind of deal.
1: One off, Sean comes back, he's victorious, and he puts Hunter over uh, with the heat at the end. Sends him away.
0: Who was the uh, goofball doctor who comes out? Do you know, Do you recognize him?
1: Yeah, as our actual doctor. I love that. i a goofball, he's a nice guy. I want to ask
0: you briefly about a line that Lawler had on the commentary. Uh, I didn't remember this at the time, uh, but somewhere in here, they're fighting outside. Uh, And Sean takes a bump off of Hugo's boot, and he hits Triple H in the head with the heel of the boot, and Lawler said a heel for a heel. And it's not often during these times that you would hear the terms face or heel on TV. Do you remember there being any sort of comment from anybody about saying a heel for a heel?
1: No. I think people understand what a heel is, and it's an inside term, but it's also an everyday term. That guy's a heel. Uh,
0: You know, when when
1: guy, he's a heel, motherfucker. When Sean comes back
0: through the curtain after the match, you know, knowing his relationship with Vince, what was that moment like?
1: Oh, it was very emotional. It was emotional that that Sean delivered what he delivered in that match. And it was it was great to have him back in the ring being Sean Michaels, and I think that he delivered on what he wanted to go out and be Sean Michaels and be the showstopper. So, uh, very emotional on everybody's part. Just, God, I love him. You know, Sean's like a son to Hunter. I mean, to Vince. Right. Well, it's one of the better matches of his
0: entire career. I can't recommend it enough. He made everything look effortless. Of course, as we know, this one match would turn into like eight more years, and Sean didn't officially retire until 2010. In fact, he would win the world title from Triple H just a couple of months later, a few months later, I guess, at the Elimination Chamber at the Survivor Series, which we may or may not be covering for the 15-year anniversary this November. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the next skit, which I guess you had to have some sort of buffer before the main event. You don't want to have something follow this, but you've got Howard Finkel out here, and Howard is putting himself over, talking about, you know, I've got a few things I want to get off my chest, and there's a collective groan from the crowd he says this is his first pay-per-view in that arena since WrestleMania two, and that was something called commitment, which is something that the Major League Baseball guys can't say because they might be going on strike, but the fans can always count on the Fink. Here comes Trish Stratus, and Fink says two weeks ago she slapped him on Raw, and then last week she pushed him into the pool, but not to get too cocky because she's just uh, in an arena full of Long Island skanks. Um, and of course, she says she has a surprise for him, takes her jacket off, and Fink says, This is a dog eat dog world, and she has the puppies, but he has the wiener.
1: Y- you no, have no, 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 he, but I have the wiener. That's what I needed.
0: Can you do the whole line? I feel like people need this as like a ringtone.
1: Well, Trish, while this may be a dog eat dog world, you have the puppies and I have the wiener. Thank you. Look, man. um, The wiener. People can, can shit on it all they want and talk about, oh, this was all trash. Go back and listen. To the pop Trish gets when she comes out for this little gaga uh, light moment.
0: Well, the, then Lillian Garcia. great shit. I love you defending this. Then Lillian comes in from behind as Trish's surprise and kicks Fink Fink in the dink dink. Uh, who booked this shit, and why can I imagine Vince laughing about all this? Ha, ha, ha! Ah, shit! Dinked him in the
1: dink dink. You gotta love it. Take that, Finkel. Yeah, you got it damn fucking um yeah vince did love it um again you got to give credit where credit's due uh send your hate mail to brian goertz um heel finkel come on heel howard was a great character allow me to introduce to you why the long face lillian Um, oh my let's move on oh it was great shit man howard howard is a heel and feuding with with Lillian because they both had this sense of self importance that you have the puppies and I have the wiener God I love it look at him look at him kick him in the wee wee
0: kick him in the wee wee Lillian kick him, wee-wee. kick him in the wee wee kick him in the wee wee come into the t-shirt store soon uh, a little kick bit of- him in the wee wee can we move on? Yeah. A little bit of history about the world title match. Uh, during the in-ring promo on Raw, we have Vince announced that Austin's gone and that the winner of the King of the Ring tournament is going to get a shot at the undisputed title at SummerSlam. Well, Brock wins the tournament, beating RVD in the finals. So that gets us here. Rock Lesnar for the undisputed title. And, man, the buildup for this was super fun. You know, they're showing that Brock is now a monster. There's a, a training video for both guys, which is super old school. It feels very Hogan-esque. I loved it. something cool about seeing the Rock work out in Miami at the football stadium, too. Uh, and they're positioning Brock as a monster. They're showing him smear Hulk Hogan's blood over his chest. Uh, and what do you know? This is when we finally see the next big thing become the big thing. Lesnar gets the win here over The Rock. I enjoyed this match. Um, it got three and three-quarter stars. I thought it was a pretty good match, and it had a lot of heat from the crowd. Uh, there are some fun Rocky sucks chants, I guess, at this point. Some fans are ready for a change. They're they're tired of The Rock, uh, and they're just really into the Brock character. But I thought for what it was, this is a pretty good match. What would you think?
1: I thought it was a great match. It was a great story building up rock. I, I, it was just beautifully done. And to see that big bastard go in there and deliver on the level that he did. And for rock, you know, rock was going away. People knew that he was leaving. So they were ready. You know, they were ready for him to go. They were pissed off that he was leaving because, you know, anytime that somebody leaves, it's like, why are you leaving us? This is bullshit. Um, But it was the anointing of a new champion, and I thought it was done the right way, and it it was just perfection, and it was a perfect way to cap off the night.
0: I think it's a match that I would recommend everybody check out. I know I've said that for a few segments here, but that Nidia thing is awesome. The damn Shawn Michaels match is incredible, and this is hard to beat here with Rock and Brock in the main event. Because the crowd is so far into Lesnar, it's not even funny. And remember, Rock's one of the most over characters ever, but it is New York. They know he's leaving, so they're chanting at the top of their lungs, let's go Lesnar and Rocky sucks. Eventually, Rock even looks to the crowd, flips him off, and says, fuck you. Um, it's just super fun stuff here. And, and Brock is being relentless. He's throwing Rock around like you see him do in 2017. And uh, eventually, I saw something that I kind of forgot when I was watching this back. Paul Heyman took a bump through an announcer's table. I don't remember seeing that before. It feels like something that would have had to be negotiated. But, you know, right after, because maybe the move didn't go uh, extremely well, you see The Rock getting his ear trying to check on him. What did you think of, of, of Paul's job taking a bump here through the announcer's table?
1: I thought it was great. I thought it was great. No, and and, no, there was nothing wrong with that bump. That's always customary. And and if you know what you're looking for, some guys are more obvious than others, but you always want to check on somebody in some kind of crazy bump like that. And Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't a worker. Paul wasn't somebody that took bumps every night. So you just want to make sure that he's okay. And everything's all good in Heyman town.
0: According to the rumor in innuendo, when Paul takes the bump, Taz is seen cheering loudly. Uh, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Um, I thought it was a, a, cool, do- a cool deal here where they, they do the rock bottom, and it looks like that's going to be the pin, and Brock kicks out. Eventually, Brock hits his own rock bottom, and Rock kicks out. Rock goes for the people's elbow, but Brock hops right up and levels him with the clothesline. They go into a great series of spots here where Lesnar finally hits the F5 for the clean pinfall, and the crowd just goes nuts. I don't think that The Rock could have done a better job putting the guy over. And it capped it off one of the best pay-per-views ever. There's a fun spot in here that I kind of forgot until I saw it again this time. Where Rock and Brock do simultaneous kip-ups. And the crowd yeah. is just hot for everything. I think it's, it, this might be one of The Rock's best matches ever. What well, say you, Bruce?
1: the banana, the are beautiful. It was great on every level. It was the way. It was the way to make a champion, and it was way to take a guy like Brock Lesnar that people people were still on the fence about Brock, and it was a way to take him to the next level and having the big star put him over the right way and make him the champion and take him. Take him to that next stratosphere. I thought it was absolutely positively beautiful. Enjoyed the shit out of it. And you keep saying about how, you know, go back and watch this match. What you have been saying this whole show, go back and watch this show. Top to bottom, it delivered. And we talked about the Shawn Michaels Triple H match right before this, which was great and could have ended the show. But like I said, we didn't know what we had. Um, So we ended it here, and this didn't disappoint as well. Putting the the last spot, it delivered in the last spot, and was a fucking excellent match. Now, right
0: after the match, according to the rumor and innuendo, Rock jumped right on a plane and went to the hospital to go see the birth of his first child. Is that how that went down as far as you remember? Yes, I believe so, yes. Uh, Isn't it a little ironic that Kurt Angle gets his first world title win, beating The Rock, and so does Brock Lesnar?
1: Well, there you go. If you're gonna if you're gonna do the job to somebody, wouldn't you like to do you know do it to Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar? Well, these two guys that you really couldn't. Beat sure, absolutely. If you wanted to.
0: There's there's been some discussion that once upon a time someone pitched there being kind of a screwy finish here, but Rock vetoed that and wanted to lose clean in the middle. Do you remember that?
1: One hundred percent. I don't know anybody ever pitching a screwy finish but I do know that Rock was adamant about putting Brock over in the middle with his finish. He's like, if I'm going to lose it, I'm losing it in the middle with his finish.
0: This is just a few months after the Rock-Hogan WrestleMania where Rock was supposed to be the face, but everybody was cheering Hogan like crazy. And here, you know, Lesnar's supposed to be the heel, but New York is cheering him like crazy. Was that a, Was that expected going in?
1: You knew, hey, it's a smart crowd. They know he's leaving. They're going to boo him. Well, we, we knew because of the reactions that we had been getting leading up to it. Right. Um, pe- people knew that Rock was going away to do a movie, and the writing was on the wall. The, the smart fans knew it, and they didn't like it, and they saw Brock coming up. They're like, okay, hey, man, give me the, give me the big man and let, it, let him squash him. So, yeah, we, we knew it. We expected it. Rock knew going in. that's kind of, you know, as you see the match go on, he flipped everybody off. He turns heel in the middle of it just to to give them that. Okay, you want him? You got him.
0: Was uh, Brock winning the belt something Heyman had lobbied for? Heyman's the head writer of SmackDown. Obviously, Brock is real-life friends with Heyman. uh, So now he's got the title on his boy, and he's writing for the show. Was that something he was campaigning for, or did Vince just see it because of the size and the natural athleticism in Brock?
1: We, we all campaigned for it. It was it was a natural progression. Uh, yes, Heyman was definitely in on it, but we all were in on it. And Rock was in on it big time. Rock felt very strongly about Brock being the guy and felt that he could be the guy to, to take it to the next level.
0: Lesnar became the youngest world champion in history here, winning it at just 25 years old. Of course, a couple of years after this, Randy Orton would break that record uh, being the youngest man to win it. Um. All in all, though, this kind of explained the Stephanie laugh from earlier in the show because now Lesnar is taking the world title to SmackDown. It's no longer on Raw, and Bischoff the next day would award the big gold belt, the old WCW title. He would just hand it to Triple H on Raw, and so now we've got uh, two separate belts again. Um Hated it. Hated it. Made no sense. Well, it happened, and we'll break it down on another time. But first, let's put a bow on SummerSlam. A great pay-per-view. Did everybody, was this high fives all around? Everybody knew this was a home run? No. Um, Hell yeah. Is this the greatest SummerSlam of all time, in
1: your opinion? In my opinion, after watching it again, yeah. I, I just... I would go I would go home and watch it again. And I probably will.
0: Well, anything else you want to mention about SummerSlam 02 before we get to this week's poll? I think I'm good. Well, we're going to be good next week because we have got an old school poll for you. If you're a big fan of the nineteen eighties, I have got a surprise for you. You can vote in our poll, and it's going to be all about the eighties, baby. Cruise on over to Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. That's where you'll find the poll this week. Like us on Facebook and be sure to check us out during Raw and SmackDown. You never know when we might jump in and do a little Facebook live action. And we might even get a chance to do it on Thursday since Bruce's ass is fired from yet another wrestling company. Poll topic number one, Bruce.
1: You know what, though? I I, I am the number one sports podcast in the world. Want to see my trophy? What am I? You're the co-host. I got the trophy. Want to see the trophy?
0: You know that I introduced the show and post it and edit it and do the research and
1: record. I know. I love you. I love we you wouldn't ha- Folks, we wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for Conrad. I even said that last night at the award ceremony. You see the trophy? I see the trophy. Okay.
0: You know what? You're going to see a great poll topic. Poll topic number one: The Honky Talk Man. What might we talk about if Honky Talk Man wins the poll? He's just a honky-tonk man.
1: I'm the honky-tonk man. He's a honky-tonk man. He's the honky-tonk man. Oh, gee, so much to talk about the honky-tonk man, from his controversial being the greatest intercontinental champion of all time to the time that he tore his peck. And Vince's reaction to the honky-tonk man tearing his peck, which was probably one of my all-time favorite Vince reactions to something. But I think honky-tonk's... History speaks for itself, and we will address it by God. Poll topic number two, the big boss man. What might we talk about if the big boss man wins the poll? Well, first of all, how the hell he became the big boss man and the conversation leading up to it, including the making of all those big boss man vignettes, um, going into the prison for the very first time and actually shooting boss man vignettes inside of an active prison which was kind of crazy, and the transition from him from heel to baby face, and all kinds of fun raid trailer stories along the way.
0: Third up, here we go, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. He's poll topic number three. What might we talk about if Mach wins the poll? Freak go.
1: Freak out. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about this a bit. We're going to talk about the relationship with the macho man, traveling up and down the roads with Randy and Liz, staying at his house, one of the few people that he ever Uh, opened his house up to to actually stay there. But so many Randy Savage stories that if this one wins, we're going to have to do a two-parter at least uh, for Randy Savage, if Randy Savage wins, because there's just so much to cover.
0: Last but certainly not least, he's been on a few times. I hope he wins this time. That's just me being a homer. Jake the Snake Roberts, one of the most underrated performers of all time, is poll topic number four.
1: We're going to talk about the creation of the DDT. We're not only going to talk about Jake's career, and we we can go all the way back to Mid-South when Jake the Snake Roberts was working for Bill Watts when I first got to know Jake. But when Jake made his move over to the WWF, Jake also being somewhat instrumental in me coming over and the evolution of Jake. And, And we'll talk about some dark times and, of course, get to the happy ending that is Jake the Snake Roberts today.
0: So there you go. There's your poll this week. Check it out. Go ahead and vote right now. It's Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Honky Tonk Man, Big Boss Man, The Macho Man, and Jake the Snake Roberts. I should have put another poll topic in with man in there. I got three men. Anyway, I- which one is your favorite man? Go vote right now. Facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And we'll see you next week right here. Probably talking about The Macho Man. On something to wrestle with.
1: The award-winning podcast of Bruce Pritchard. I was
0: going to say, it's like the number one sports and recreation podcast in the world. And that's not Award just a rumor and innuendo. It's award-winning.
1: Now, I got a trophy to prove it.
0: You know it's, what's funny, too? We won the fucking sports and recreation category. <laughs> 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 it's not even real sports like we, we're up against UFC NBA NFL Major League Baseball NBA it's a fucking rib Bill Simmons yeah. and leputard smash they're like, they're
1: like they're like they're like real um like sports caster guys
0: uh how many other wrestling podcasts were nominated that would be zero the same number that won roll title that Bruce Pritchard
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together